It's just kind of funny that he's Dundee, but he's actually not Australian. Yeah, New Zealand is not Australia. <laughs> I believe that's their official uh, tagline. <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not so good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by a man who won a title at last year's show, but was forced to surrender it in January, Alec Bridgen. Yeah, it was a rough time for me, but I got past it. And the master of the fence match, John Mullins. I like fences. (laughs) Uh, How was Thanksgiving, guys? You all stuffed full of turkey? I only had two pieces, but I was thoroughly stuffed. <laughs> you didn't see how big the pieces were, so they could have been like, you know, two pounds. That is true. No, everyone else kind of hoarded. I uh, was only um, present for like half of it. I was chasing three and four-year-olds around. <laughs> Burn those calories somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, tonight we're taking a look at Starcade 86, The Skywalkers. Let's see if we're still feeling thankful by the end. Now, before we get started on the actual show, there's a very big and very sad change since last year's show that we really need to discuss here, and that's what happened to Magnum TA. Yep. He was clearly on the rise in Jim Crockett Promotions last year, being primed to be one of their biggest stars, and it shouldn't surprise anyone that that continued into 1986, as his path continued inexorably towards a world title match. But on October 14th, 1986, as he drove in the rain, he lost control of his vehicle and crashed into a telephone pole. He survived, but the accident destroyed vertebrae in his spine. This spelled the end of his in-ring career, though he would continue to make non-wrestling appearances for Jim Crockett Promotions and later WCW. It was a tragic end to a very promising career. I think we can agree that Magnum TA had the potential to be one of the greats. I'd even venture to say he earned his place on that list from last year's match alone. He was a true performer, but though his performances in the ring ended, I'm very glad that the man himself survived and was able to go on and live his life. A big change from the apparent direction of last year. Obviously, it's not in anyone's control, but... Yeah, it's really awkwardly handled on the shows, because they run a show that technically happens after the accident... But they just don't mention it because I think it was pre-taped. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching a show that happened years after the accident. There's no mention whatsoever. He's even there doing a promo. But then the next week, suddenly, like, oh, what happened? Like, oh, that happened already. But, I mean, it's just a loss. But, yeah. Yeah. The life goes sometimes. I'd like to see some other matches before October 14th to see, yeah. you know. Where, where the, he goes, but I, I'm not familiar with uh, his time there. Yeah, I've, I've last year's match is the only Magnum TA match that I've actually seen, and I definitely would like to see more. On a show front, Magnum's accident forced Jim Crocker Promotions booker, Dusty Rhodes, to go looking for another promising babyface to face Ric Flair, and he picked Nikita Koloff. More on that when we get to the world title match. Yes. <laughs> 
Starcade 86, The Skywalkers, took place at the Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina, in front of about 16,000 fans, and in the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia, in front of about 14,000. So we're doing the two arenas thing again this year, which seemed all right last year, so fine by me. Another 47,000 fans tuned in over closed-circuit television. Interestingly, the Coliseum numbers are about the same as last year, but closed-circuit television numbers are up, and Omni numbers are down. Huh. I'm not sure if that means huh. anything in particular. Maybe they just changed seating arrangements, but I just found it an interesting difference. Unlike last year, we have two different announced crews this time. At Greensboro Coliseum, we have Bob Cottle and Johnny Weaver, while at the Omni, we have Tony Schiavone and Rick Stewart. Interestingly, while Greensboro has ring announcer Tom Miller, at the Omni, Tony's doing the ring announcing. I kind of like that Jim Crockett Promotions keeps being so willing to experiment like this. You know, uh, they might not always get it right, but they do seem to always be trying something different, and that's that's kind of cool. Now, I will say Johnny Weaver is such a very tiny presence on the show. It's almost like having one announcer that occasionally changes voices very briefly, but yeah. Yeah, Weaver doesn't do a lot on commentary. I don't think he's terrible, but... no. I've I've heard other former wrestlers go into announcing, and there's a pattern with them that I rather like, mm -hmm. that they um, will start talking about how a move's supposed to work or how you're supposed to put it on or, you know, get into the intricacies of holds and and uh, and different moves. Mm -hmm. Weaver does none of that over the no. course of the show, so he kind of misses out on what makes a former wrestler as an announcer very fun. Yeah, his. Performance will definitely be interesting contrast when we get a few stars down the line when we have Jesse Ventura. Yeah. Because you'll definitely see a difference in what Jesse Ventura as a former wrestler and an actually fully formed character brings. Yeah, they actually have a lot of former wrestler announcers in WCW. You have Ventura, you have Dusty Rhodes eventually, and you have Larry Zabisco. Right, that's the other one, yeah. I, I Out of all that list, like the one I'm most interested in hearing is is uh, Dusty Rhodes. Oh my gosh, yeah. Dusty is one of my favorite WCW commentators, <laughs> and you will love hearing him commentate on matches, I promise you. Yeah, so many Dustyisms, yeah. <laughs> yes. The Rockin' Starcade theme welcomes us to the show as we get a laser light spectacular, complete with laser projections of Starcade and Skywalkers on a big screen above the ring, interspersed with shots of the imposing scaffold that will be used for the Skywalkers match. Tom Miller at the Coliseum welcomes everyone to the show, with a shot of him overlaid over a shot of the scaffold. I guess to get them both in the same shot since they're in totally different arenas. Huh. Why not just have Tony do the show intro then? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a little odd, isn't it? Anything about that? We get the national anthem right at the start again, the same nice instrumental version as last year. It's the exact same. You can tell it's on a tape because the tape fails towards the end of the song and starts <laughs> skipping. Consistency. <laughs> yes. There's uh, there's one super excited lady in the crowd who noticed herself on the screen, and she's standing right next to this tall guy that looks just like Luke Harper from the modern WWE. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of amazed to see that. Um, did you guys like the uh, laser light show? I thought that was pretty cool, actually. It was appropriately eight, I'll give them that. Yeah. It brought me back. I'm trying to remember. There was like uh I forget if it was at the Science Center or Great Explorations or maybe Mosey. 
there was some show that I went to that was uh, one of those uh, laser light uh, spectacular things. Right. And, yeah. Um, I, I I distinctly remember that, it, that at one point during the show they played uh, I forget what the actual song title is now, but the do the hammer the hammer time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they had a laser laser light show going to the him doing the hammer on on a screen, which was pretty awesome. It was very 80s, but it was a bigger feel than they've had before, I think, for their intro. These are becoming showier. Yeah. We're not quite to the everyone has pyro stage. Yes. We'll get there eventually. I'm just happy that a lot of people now have intro music. Yeah. You can associate it with the the character. Plus, Dusty's on, what, his third theme now? Yeah. This one was better. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's just weird that he's had three now. Some people have had zero the entire time. Yes. Our first match is at the Greensboro Coliseum. Let's go to the ring. So our first match at the Coliseum is Tim Horner and Nelson Royal versus Rocky Kernoodle, formerly known as Keith Larson, and Don Kernoodle. As I mentioned, Rocky Kernoodle used to go by Keith Larson under the angle that he didn't want to use Brother Don's name because he wanted to earn his way to the top or some such. I guess that didn't go so well, so he decided, eh, I'll take a shortcut. <laughs> well, I mean, that or he didn't want to be Kernoodle. I mean, I don't blame him, honestly. Yeah, that is true, yeah. So going into this match, they asked Don Kernoodle who he thought he would win this match. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he said, Harley Race. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's consistent. Rocky and Horner start us off, trading arm drags and hammerlocks to struggle for control. After a missed dropkick, Rocky tags out to Don. Horner surprises Don with a slam at first and gets two, but Don catches Horner and gets a big power slam for his own two, forcing Horner to tag out. Royal comes in and the two are even, with Royal catching Don in holds but Don powering out, until Don hits the turnbuckle hard on a charge. Royal and Horner try to take control, but when Royal grabs a sleeper, Don walks to his corner with Royal on his back and tags Rocky, who comes in with a sunset flip off the top rope to grab Royal off Don's back and take him down for two. Nice spot. Yeah, absolutely. Rocky keeps the advantage until he misses a crossbody, and Horner comes in for the two to try dodging around each other until they collide as they both try leapfrogs and butt heads. Rocky manages to tag Don, and he gets a huge stalling vertical suplex for two. A later splash misses, and would have even if Horner hadn't dodged. Very much so. <laughs> mm -hmm. But Horner's barely taken advantage before Don tags Rocky. Rocky gets a stalling overhead press for two, then grabs Horner for a backdrop. But Horner flips over him, and he and Rocky struggle for positioning until Rocky rolls him up from behind. But Horner keeps the momentum going and rolls on top for the pin. It was fine. Obviously, there's no story to it. It's really just, here's some guys in... Fairly generic outfits doing good, if nothing super impressive. There's a couple of good spots, like you mentioned. The powering out the Super Bowl is kind of nice. But nothing really stands out among the whole thing to me. Mm -hmm. It's solid, but unremarkable, I'd say. The the flip off the top was nice. I have yeah. that down there. And I have uh, in my notes, uh, Tumbleweed Finisher. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that, a perfect roll. name. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good name, yeah. Yeah, I didn't think this was was too bad. No, it was it had a pretty good pace to it. They had that classic tag team mix of the big power guy and the smaller athletic guy on both sides, mm -hmm. and it worked pretty well. I actually really liked Don Kernoodle in this match. Yeah, 
I haven't ever actually seen him wrestle, just fail to make predictions. So it was nice to actually see what this guy did for his career. He's got some pretty good power spots, so he seemed pretty good in the ring. Rocky and Horner were both pretty fast, but seemed a little bit awkward at times. Yeah. I'd say Nelson Royal felt like kind of the weakling for me. He's not necessarily bad, but he didn't do that much, and his spots against Don felt a little bit repetitive. They do a spot where a shoulder block works, and then a second attempt's countered into a hold twice mm, yeah. in, a tag ma- in a short tag match, you know? So, How old is Nelson? I, I'm nothing against him. I was just, just curious. I'm going to guess under 100. You're a great guesser, John. He was born in 1935. This is 1986, so about 50. 50, 51, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the one thing I will know. It's kind of weird. Jim Crocker Promotions brought in Tim Horner and Brad Armstrong, who were the Lightning Express. Yeah. So you would assume they would be in the tag team match, but for some reason they decided Brad Armstrong should be in the other match, and they just stuck Tim Horner with an older veteran guy for no apparent reason. So the whole thing is kind of weirdly put together. Yeah. Don Cornell left the NWA following year, so he's not on the next show as far as I'm aware. His brother has no wiki page, so who knows what happened to him. <laughs> I looked. I could not find one. And I mentioned earlier that Tim Horner and Armstrong were often teaming together. Confusingly, Nelson Royal, after this, goes back to being a single wrestler, and he starts feeding with Scott Armstrong. Huh. So he teamed with Brad Armstrong's partner, and then started fighting Brad Armstrong's brother. Okay. Interesting. A lot of families in wrestling. Maybe he's mad because Brad Armstrong wouldn't team up with him. Yeah. Although they also won, so I don't know what he's complaining about. Yeah, yeah, true. (laughs) Our second match is over at the Omni. It is Brad Armstrong versus gorgeous Jimmy Garvin with Precious. Brad Armstrong is uh, not only not tagging with his tag team partner, but he's in a completely different state. (laughs) Yes. I want to really make sure he wouldn't try to sneak back in, I guess. Yeah. Basically, Jimmy Garvin is the new heel they're heavily promoting at this point. It's another variation on the I'm so pretty, I'm better than you kind of character. Brad Armstrong is a young, upcoming guy. They decided he should be in a match with them. That's really all there is to it. All right. Garvin comes out in super sparkly suspenders, pants, and armbands, and a big fluffy coat, and does muscle poses for the crowd. Then he strips down to plain white tights. At least he's got blue knee pads, so it doesn't look quite like he's just out there in his underwear. (laughs) Yeah. Brad Armstrong looks uncannily like Magnum TA did last year. Same tights and hair, just different facial hair. (laughs) It's pretty striking, yeah. Also, I have to note that the referee's name is Scrappy McGowan. Yes. I believe my life is complete. (laughs) (laughs) Two canoodles and a Scrappy McGowan so far after a good start. It's a pretty good, pretty good night for names. Yeah. Armstrong and Garvin start out aggressively shoving each other around the ring, and Garvin yells at the crowd. They trade holds, and an annoyed Garvin ruffles Armstrong's hair during a rope break to get him angry, but it backfires as Armstrong takes control and gets some two counts off knee strikes on the mat. They rapidly trade takedowns, and Armstrong gets a headlock on Garvin, but Garvin uses the tights to pull him over into a pin attempt. Armstrong points it out, and Scrappy actually notices. When does the ref ever notice that? It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've seen so many matches where they don't catch it, and suddenly this guy's on point. Yeah. 
Garvin gets some leg holds, and he and Precious taunt the fans. Armstrong escapes and gets an arm lock, holding on through several escape attempts, until Precious distracts Scrappy for a moment, and Garvin grabs the hair to get Armstrong in a head scissors hold. <laughs> Dag nabbit, says Tony. PG-13. <laughs> <laughs> the crowd notifies Scrappy that Garvin has been cheating, so Garvin yells for them to shut up. They work around the head scissors until Armstrong escapes. Precious hurls abuse at Armstrong, and Scrappy catches more Garvin tight-pulling, and Armstrong nearly puts Garvin out with a headlock. Frustrated, Garvin gets vicious and ends up throwing Armstrong out over the middle rope. Precious yells at Armstrong to get back in, and Garvin repeatedly kicks him off the apron. Eventually, Armstrong makes it back in, and Garvin gets several two-counts as he drops Armstrong on the top rope, pulls his hair, and hits a backbreaker. Time's running out, and they really pick up the pace and trade some hard punches and kicks before they each try roll-ups for quick pin attempts. As the time ticks down, Garvin hits a body slam and climbs up to the top, but the bell rings as he comes off for a splash. Armstrong dodges and nails him right in the face with a good right hook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the match is over. Post-match, Precious gets into the ring and hurls yet more abuse at Armstrong, and Garvin tries to sneak up behind him but Armstrong catches him and hits multiple punches to his face to knock him back out of the ring. Precious encourages Garvin to go back to the locker room, and Garvin yells, I can beat him, baby! I can beat him! <laughs> and tells Armstrong he's lucky she's holding him back. It's definitely an interesting one for me because there's really not much story, but they work the match so well, it feels like their story. Mm -hmm. They do all these little things throughout that make... Make it clear, even if you've never watched any build-up or any of these, if you were the first person time watching wrestling show even, which a lot of people probably were back at this point, you would get who the bad guy is. You would get the characters to all of that in there really well. Mm -hmm. My only real negative of the match is that this is the first match at the arena where they have the scaffold. And there's a lot of awkwardness of trying to avoid walking under it and walking around it. Yeah. That's really not their fault. It's oddly put together sets yeah you get weird camera angles sometimes that's with the other those thing, matches yeah. don't you yeah that's the other one yeah because they can't quite get the same shots precious was annoying i'm sorry it is just like whenever the audio cut in she's like get in there get in there and uh um even with the distractions when he has him in the the scissor hold and he's like shut up i'm lounging here because he's not he looks so bored <laughs> <laughs> he's doing that thing. Just, yeah, I was expecting him just to put his head, his his arm behind his head while he's holding the thing. <laughs> there was so many uh, close calls. I, I was really wondering if the ref knew how knew how to count to three because it was like two, <laughs> two, two over and over again. It's not it's not guest ref for steamboat, so we're pretty safe on that. You hear the announcer at the very end, and he's like, "There's fifteen seconds left and i'm like so they get to like their 15 seconds of fame and then he's like no i'm not gonna jump off <laughs> forget it so it wasn't really the best ending for me i mean i don't i don't like to see a draw but yeah. it, it just seems weird where certain with they talk about time limits and and some of the other ones don't even get halfway through the time limit so yeah i don't recall ever hearing anything about time limits after this match I don't think so, no. I mean, they might have announced how many, how what the time was at the start of the match. Sure. But I mean, they don't have someone coming over the loudspeaker and saying, you know, 10 minutes remaining, five minutes remaining, or anything like that. When you do it that way, 
it's kind of a dead giveaway that you're going to have a time limit draw, or at least get really, really close to it. This was a little repetitive to me with the headlock and head scissor spots and kind of sticking with those for quite a while. Sure. But I really liked it otherwise. Armstrong's very good at just like a quick, intense wrestling style, and Garvin has some pretty tremendous crowd interaction. The two really wrestled quickly, and they kept struggling for control at all times, so the match really never feels like it slows down, even if they're in holds or things like that. I actually really enjoyed Precious on the outside. I thought she was pretty hilarious at times, particularly when Armstrong's knocked outside and she just keeps yelling for him to get back in there, get back in there. And then just Garvin knocks him down and she's like, come on, what are you, a wimp? Get back in there. I found that pretty funny. I didn't. She is constantly yelling throughout the entire match, though, so I can see that, too. There's a good story to the match, I think, overall, and I liked actually for once having a ref that was at least somewhat wise to the heels cheating for once. Yeah, I can see that. So, but I will agree the ending brings it down. I'd never really liked the time limit draw thing. No. There's so many ways that you can end a wrestling match other than that, and it it just doesn't work too well. Plus, it feels like they mistimed it a little. Like, Garvin might have been supposed to come off the ropes in the splash, and then the bell rings, when the bell actually rings just as he's jumping. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's almost like he should hear the bell and not jump. <laughs> they could know? they could have fudged it, you know, and just been like, no, he's not on the air yet, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was like a three flow. They'll they'll hold the clock if the ball is still in motion or something. Yeah. True. Yeah. Well, I mean, it did have a sense of urgency and or suspense or whatever, as you know, that kept on building and building, and then just nothing. Yeah. It is always weird doing inclusive finishes. Designed to build up to another match at your biggest show of the year. Yeah, true. And it's just two really good wrestlers stuck in a kind of awkward position booking-wise for me. Mm-hmm. Now, they each had some good exchanges throughout the match and just, again, wished it ended a little bit differently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So after this, going in 1987, Red Armstrong would go to the UWF, the Universal Wrestling Federation, but I guess it's better than being in the world. I guess it'd be one notch above. Yeah, true. Based out of Texas. And unfortunately, Dean Clark Promotions 1987 would buy the EWF. So he is back again. I mean, good for us, but it's weird that he leaves and then gets literally dragged back in the company he just left because the one he joined was then bought by them. <laughs> he, he was scouting. Yeah, there you go. He's a spy. <laughs> Our next match is back at the Coliseum. Hector Guerrero and Baron Von Raschke versus Shaska Watley and the Barbarian. Hector Guerrero, we have to note, I think, looks uncannily like Eddie. Yes. I forget, are they brothers, cousins? They're brothers, yeah. Brothers, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, aside from being clearly separated by a few years, they're darn near identical twins. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so we're at the point in the 80s where we're getting managers for every group and we're also getting larger groups in the WBF. You have the Heenan family coming around this point and you have slick would have seven or eight people. So you'd have this large group. So you'd have like five managers for like 50 people. Yeah. So that's where we are at this point where we have Paul Jones and his army, which means he's dressing in weird camo fatigues. The group includes Shaska Watley, Barbarian, who's there from last year, 
probably still mad they think of that $10,000 from the arm wrestling yeah, contest. Probably. I mean, I would be. And Baron Von Raschke, or Raschke, as they sometimes say it. They get the really, really, really emphasize certain letters. <laughs> it's very distracting for me. A, mo- a month before the show, they have a six-man match on TV where the Baron loses yet again. I guess it's been a recurring thing. And they turn on him and beat him up. Again, he's a heel who's been betrayed by his manager, which I guess makes you a good guy, even though he didn't really do anything different to be a good guy. He just is by default. Yeah. Hector Guerrero in another promotion. Hector was in a team with the Rage and Bullman Fernandez, who is now also a bad guy in Paul Jones. So I guess Baron just made a click call in Mexico and said, hey, your tag partner betrayed you. Mine betrayed me. Let's pick a tag team. Okay, then. And thus, this bizarre, presumably one-time tag team is born. All right. Hector Guerrero has the most stereotypical Mexican music, this side of actually giving him the Mexican hat dance song as his theme. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> or awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that too. And he also comes out wearing a wide sombrero and two bandoliers of bullets. Which are better than belts. Yes. Because they're also belts. <laughs> It looks weird with just wrestling trunks, though. It's like he was dressing up for a cowboy film and just forgot the rest of his outfit. You're playing Borderlands. <laughs> He's a male stripper that is also a cowboy. What's hard, okay. hard to entertain about that? All right. Not a big leap. Shaska Watley has a top hat and a long coat, which also looks a little weird worn over just wrestling trunks. Yes. All four brawl to start, with Guerrero and Baron reversing the heel's attempts to whip them into each other and knocking Barbarian out of the ring. Guerrero runs rings around Watley and hits a nice springboard body press and a drop kick. But Watley rakes his eyes and tags Barbarian. Guerrero tries to stay ahead of him, but Barbarian catches him and tosses him on the ropes, then ties him up in the ropes and charges while Watley holds him. Guerrero dodges, and Barbarian goes through the ropes, and Guerrero jumps over the top rope and hits a body splash to take Barbarian down to the floor. Watley quickly smacks Guerrero into the ring post, though. Is that the first jump out of the ring land on somebody move that we've seen so far? I'm pretty sure it's the first planche, yeah. I I think so. Yeah. So that's a notable spot then. Trust it to be a Guerrero that does it. (laughs) Yes, that's a pretty safe bet. The crowd certainly enjoyed that part. Yeah. With Guerrero dazed, the heels take advantage and start trading off to beat him up including a big leg drop from Barbarian, as the crowds chant something unintelligible, and Bob tells us Johnny Weaver has left the announce table to go try to interview Dusty Rhodes. Guerrero takes a beating, with Watley and Barbarian trading off and Barbarian landing some big slams and backbreakers. Finally, Watley punches Guerrero down and spits on him, but Guerrero recovers, spits back in Watley's face, and dives for his corner to tag Baron. The Baron beats up both heels and gets his claw hold on Watley, but is broken by Barbarian. Guerrero comes in to hold off Barbarian, and the Baron dodges a splash from Watley in the corner, then hits an elbow drop for the three. Post-match, the heels throw Guerrero out and beat up the Baron, finishing with Barbarian's flying headbutt, before Guerrero comes in and dropkicks Watley to encourage them to leave. The crowd starts chanting something unintelligible again. I could never figure out what the heck they were seeing with this one. Yeah, I... I... We were both trying to figure out. I yeah. can't tell what they're saying. I googled it. Yeah? No, there's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find... I was like, 
typing it, I was like, what's his catchphrase? Or, you know. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, there's got to be something related to either Hector or the Baron, but I could not figure it out. Yeah. It's definitely a nicked one for me because, like we were talking about before, there's a good dynamic with the, with the tag team where you have a big, strong guy and a smaller, quicker guy. This is definitely has that dynamic, but it has, I don't know, it has both the best version of that with Hector Guerrero, mm-hmm. but also the worst version of that is Baron Von Roschke, who cannot do much at this point. Yeah. He's not much younger, I think, than Nelson Roy. He might be around the same age. Uh, he was born in 1940, so 46. he's 46. Which okay, is, so he's Yeah, okay. so he does look like he's about 112, though. But yeah, it's one of those things where Hector is in the match. I really liked it. But once Baron got in, it really kind of dropped down for me. Yeah. Kind of the same on the other side, too. Barbarian is not like the best wrestler, but he has a clear style and he does all his moves that he can do very well. There's no yeah. like sloppiness to looseness to it. Chaska Watley is just kind of okay. It's only really when it's Hector and Barbarian that the match really delivers for me. Yeah. Oh, I just have the word spit takes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just put, you know, some bullet points. Yeah. <laughs> no, sure. It seems more offensive than some of the other things they do. They're spitting on each other a bit. Yeah, that bothers me. <laughs> Flu season. Yeah, true. Yeah, this match is kind of entirely the face in peril segment of a tag match. Mm-hmm. There's like not much beyond. Guerrero just bumping around for the two heels. He does it quite well. Oh, yeah. You know, like sure. I said, he's he's the best part of this match by far. He gets a few hope spots, but really it's it's just him getting beat up for an extended period of time and then tagging in the Baron for not a heck of a lot. Barbarian's still pretty imposing, and I liked him getting to show off his strength. Didn't feel like his kicks were as good as last year. He did the side kicks last year. Mm-hmm. He did a straight straight on this year, and he doesn't seem as good at those. It was really cool to see the dive to the outside. And actually, John, I really liked the trading spit spot, just because it was the first part of the match that actually seemed like there was intensity to it. Oh, that's true. But up until then, it was just like, it's kind of by the numbers, just Guerrero getting beat up. Right. Which you'd think would feel intense, but there's no like mate real emotion to it. Yeah. Where that, at that point you're finally like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> they actually care about this. <laughs> so I don't know. I can see it's like, it's kind of gross too, but um, are are you familiar with Eddie Guerrero, John? Yes. I know you... Yeah. He's one of the first people I saw um, wrestle in, in real life. Oh, cool. Nice. Like my like the second or third match. Yeah, he's pretty amazing uh, in the, and we'll see him in the late nineties. I think Hector's a pretty respectable wrestler from from what I've seen here, anyway. Yeah. What I meant to say was in person, not in real life. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I get you. <laughs> Good. Just check. Those were, all, those were all cartoons. Yeah. 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 Animated series. Yeah. You watch Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. I know. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> There's a good match here, but you have to completely restructure it. Yeah. Like, Baron really didn't add anything to this match at all for me. No. Other than being a dick tall in the corner who does one hole, which he doesn't even get to do completely. He has arguably the two laziest 
uh, easiest new finishers you can have. Because the head claw was what they gave would give to the great Kali. Yeah. And to um, Brian Adams, was it? When he was I think so, fresh? yeah, yeah. So if you don't know how to do anything in wrestling, but you're big and tall, just grab a guy's head and they'll sort of lay down while you hold them. Second laziest being the sort of fall on the elbow drop. We also saw that elbow drop finisher on the first show we did on Starcade 83, mm. done by uh, Jimmy Valiant to end oh. his match. That was, it's like, yeah, when an elbow drop finishes a match, you you got nothing. <laughs> I'll say there's also the weird aspect where when they go outside the ring from the planche and the fighting out there, it's so dim. It's like brightly lit right around the ring, but then pitch black darkness. <laughs> it's the infinite abyss. Yeah. Right. I don't know if that's to you, John, but it's just he's fighting, and then he's surrounded by space. <laughs> it's very odd to me. Yeah. Well, the greatest fear is the unknown. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> to win this match, you must conquer your own fear. That's got to be a tagline for some match somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it really should be for the scaffold match. Honestly, there's not much interaction between these groups anymore. The Paul Jones army thing keeps going through through to 87. There's really no big aspects of it afterwards. Two good things happen for two people in the match, at least. Hector Guerrero becomes Lasertron. <laughs> Spelled with a Z, in case you're wondering. Yes. And Barbarian joins the Powers of Pain. So one of them definitely benefits more from this than the others. Yes. And Hector Guerrero, of course, is also the gobbledygooker. He as is. Well. Yes. That's that's. Have you seen the gobbledygooker? I want to. <laughs> I, I'll have to show you later, but it's one of the single worst stunts ever pulled by the WWF. Where for Survivor Series they've got this giant egg at ringside, and the, like for months they've been building up what's in this giant egg. Find out at Survivor Series what's in this giant egg. Find out at Survivor Series, and it finally hatches at Survivor Series, and it's a man in a turkey outfit who does a dance, and the, the fans hurl abuse at it. Yeah. So it's very quickly buried and never used again. Aww. It did show up at the WrestleMania gimmick battle royal. WrestleMania yes, 17. yeah, but that was intended to make fun yes. of it. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. They could have introduced another Russian person, like the the, like the, the nesting dolls. Thing. <laughs> 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 Nikita Koloff comes over to the WWF and hatches out of those dolls. That'd be great. Next up, we go backstage where Weaver says that Dusty Rhodes has been conspicuous by his absence and hasn't granted anyone any interviews. He tries to get in Dusty's room to get an interview, and Dusty tells him to leave him alone. That that was worth our time. That's a first. Yeah. So, uh, great work there, Johnny. That was worth you leaving the announcer's table. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you could just told us he left, but you also could have just had him come back and say, I tried to talk Dusty Rhodes, and he wouldn't talk yeah. to us. Yeah, I don't know why we really needed to spend time on it. So let's not. All right. Back at the Omni, we have a tag match with the Russian team of Crusher Khrushchev and the Russian bear Ivan Koloff versus the Kansas Jayhawks, Bobby Jaggers and Dutch Mantel in a no-DQ match for the Russians' NWA United States Tag Team Championship. Dutch Mantel is a very, very hairy man. <laughs> yeah. Jordan Amos Steel looks 
like clean shaven by comparison. Yeah. I'm saying a lot. Peta would root for him. Yeah. <laughs> don't want don't, to don't harm him. Yeah, I can see that. So if you remember from the last show, we had the national tag team titles, which are carried from a promotion that JCP bought out. They were sort of folded and disbanded. And they decided to make United States Tag Team Champions, which is very similar to National, but I guess yeah. more clarified, maybe. National could be any country, I guess. Yeah. In the finals, a few weeks before this show, it came down to the Russians and the Kansas Jayhawks, and the Russians won, obviously, they're champions now. They fought a couple of times after that, but it didn't inclusively, we feel like I just qualified. So they made this no-DQ match. Okay. Both teams come out with their weapons on them. Ivan has his chain, and Mantel has a whip that I believe they called Shoe Baby. I I think that's something something like that. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Mantel and Ivan start, and it quickly goes against Ivan. With Mantel and Jaggers trading off for some punching and kicking, Ivan manages to escape on a wrist lock and tag Khrushchev, who batters Mantel for a bit until Jaggers comes in to even the odds. Tony notes that ref Scrappy McGowan is counting to five for warnings to break, but wrestlers don't have to follow his instructions. So, why is he counting? Is it keeping practice, I guess? Yeah, it's a habit, I guess. <laughs> Muscle memory. Mantel and Jaggers team up to choke Khrushchev in the corner, and Mantel beckons to Ivan to get him to run in, then tells the ref he's running in so the ref will go stop it. It's a cute spot, but again, why is he bothering to stop it? This is no DQ. Yeah. No one wants to get hurt. <laughs> Khrushchev dodges a leg scissors to get free, and Ivan gets himself in trouble again on a missed charge into the corner, letting the Jayhawks beat him up some more. He gets over to Khrushchev, who gets doc- knocked down, but grabs Mantel's leg, and Ivan kicks Mantel out of the ring. Tony and Rick tell us that the Kremlin is upset about what happened with Nikita, and if the Russians lost here, it would shake Moscow. But uh, then the announcers have to stop for a moment as Khrushchev drives Mantel's head into their table and drops him knee-first on the barricade. Back in, Ivan and Khrushchev double-team Mantel, and Khrushchev punches Jaggers to get him to come in and get the ref to stop him to allow more double-teaming because everyone has forgotten that this is no DQ. Mantel eventually escapes with a tag to Jaggers, and a four-man brawl starts up. Ivan goes and gets his chain, and Mantel gets his whip, and whip beats chain as Mantel gets both Russians in the legs. Mantel follows Khrushchev outside, but Khrushchev has the chain and nails him with it, then climbs up and smashes Jaggers with it as he's bouncing off the ropes, letting Ivan get the three. Post-match, the Russians get the belts and celebrate, as a despondent Mantel checks on his partner. Brawling, more brawling. (laughs) My summary of the match. I also note that it's confusing that they distract the referee for the finish, leave the chain, you know, again, it's no DQ. Yeah, it's yeah, it's weird because it's this is at this point three really veteran wrestlers. Khrushchev's the only one that's not been there wrestling too long at this point. Mantel's on the tail end of his career in the ring. Same with Koloff and all of them. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe there's they've worked so many matches that they can't help but work a match like normal, yeah. even though it's no DQ. I don't know. It'd be, it'd be nice if that was part of the story, but it's just them. Seemingly forgetting half the time how the match works. Yeah. My one positive from the match, the only thing I really remember that well, other than the chain spot, is seeing Death Mantel grab the whip thinking, so can he actually use this thing? 
because there's a long history of people at wrestling where people have guitars that mm-hmm. they cannot play, or of course the dynamic dude who come a few years from now would both come out carrying skateboards on oh, their yes. arms, but never actually ride them, <laughs> not even once. Yes, as far as I ever know. So I'm like, oh, he actually knows how to use the whip. Yeah, at he'd, one he'd point quite well with that. Actually, yeah. that's real. I remember that in the chain spot. All right. I while while you were talking, I I looked up the name of the whip. It is it is Shoe Baby. <laughs> I have uh, two quotes for the the match. It's, it's uh, Kremlins and cattle hands, or <laughs> or um, some cow pokes end up in Moscow. So I, <laughs> I, but there's nothing really remarkable. I did put a pita joke in there. Yeah, it was just a little bit back and forth. It was weird for me. Um, because one of the most notable part when Shoe Baby comes back out, they, they say that, oh, they, he brought out the chain, which you can't see because of the camera angle. And I'm like, that's not a chain, that's a whip. <laughs> and like, it just tags their, I don't even know if it actually hits them, but like, it, it's, it, they make it look like it just touches their ankle and it somehow flips them all the way around. Yeah, true. And, um, so they, well, they weigh nothing when touched by a Shoe Baby. So, when the chain comes out the end, I'm a little surprised. I know they announced it and everything. I thought they just mistakenly called the whip the chain. True, yeah. I can see that. Whole Castlevania thing going on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they, yeah. they just played enough Castlevania. They thought a whip whip yeah. would obviously be a chain whip eventually. Tony probably went backstage and then punched the, the wall and got some turkey out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Belmont sounds like it could be from Texas. Yeah, probably. Yeah, stand in the corner holding the red gem, wait for the tornado to come and carry to the end there, of the stage. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's a deep cut. Never even played that game. That's all I know. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't a lot to this one. It did have more tags than the previous match, at least. So a little bit more of a flow that way. But again, why does it have tags? Right. You know, it's mostly punches and kicks on both sides, but it does at least get kind of a back and forth flow going. There's not a lot exciting into it until, like you said, the moments with the whip and the chain kind of woke me up a little bit. It's kind of weird and unfortunate that in an ODQ match, those don't get introduced earlier. Mm-hmm. If you had a little bit more involvement from those, I think I would have been more into this. And like you said, everyone acts like this is a DQ match for the most part, like, yeah. it's, a, like it's a normal match. So it could play out almost exactly the same way until the whip and chain get involved. So I'm not really sure why they couldn't just do it as a normal match and then have the ref get knocked out and they start whipping and chaining each other. One of the time they did fall out of the, the almost fell out of the ring and the crowd went crazy. I'm like, is that is that the only way you can be disqualified? You you I don't think there is a way to be to like even the top rope thing doesn't matter in this no in this I don't one. Think so. so I think that might have just been like we're going to see more violence because they're outside the ring. I don't know. <laughs> So just the something happened, yay! Yay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's mostly forgettable. And the most interesting part of the match for me was Tony and Rick's commentary on international politics. <laughs> Wasn't Shoe Baby? No, I mean that he does a respectable job with the whip, but it's involved for such a short time that it's just like I wanted to see him doing a little more with it somehow. I don't know. Yeah. I'm used to seeing the old guy from the Dark Power sort of trying to use the whip. Yeah. Lash LaRue? Lash LaRue, yeah. Yeah. He was like in his mid-70s, and he's still, the only thing is using a whip. So seeing it used by a lightly middle-aged guy at this point at least is an improvement. Yeah, yeah. 
He's no Indiana Jones, though. No, that's the other one, yes. Yeah. Obviously. The Russians lose the tag titles in December, not to the Dayhawks, if I recall correctly. And later in the year, they have Crusher Cruiser doing other stuff, which we'll cover on Starcade. So Ivan Koloff teamed with Dick Murdoch to form another tag team. So now on like the third you know, iteration of the tag team with Ivan Koloff. Still called the Russian team, similarly based on the Olympics, I guess. Okay. But yeah, that's really, let's do it. So next up is at the Coliseum, and we have Chief Wahoo McDaniel versus Ravishing Rick Rude with Paul Jones in an Indian strap match. So this is, again, part of the whole Paul Jones army thing. Rick Rude is the the young, new guy they brought into the group. He basically has the same gimmick as Jimmy Garvin, but my best explanation that Jimmy Garvin's version is sort of ironic because he poses, but he's not like super impressive looking. So it's like, yeah, I'm really good looking. They're like, huh? Whereas Rick Rude, obviously, there's no denying that he's like ridiculously in shape, especially yes. at this point. There's a lot of really, really bad promos throughout the buildup where they say things I will not repeat. It's Wahoo McDaniel. There's good. It can only happen in the 80s stuff like laser light shows. And there's bad. It can only happen in the 80s stuff like what they say. <laughs> okay. So we don't I miss miss that. Wahoo McDaniel was apparently undefeated in Indian, Indian strap matches. He claims to have won over 300 of them, which I don't know how the, can verify that number, but I feel like that's way too high. But to get that number, that Goldberg-esque number, he's got to be either inflating the number or he's, been, or he's done his entire life. Yeah. So Rick Rude is so super confident that in one promo he brags about how you won't be able to scar me and mess my body up because I'm so good. But then the next promo he goes, well, yeah, you may give me one scar, but I'll give you three scars for every one scar you give me. So he's losing confidence as the match approaches. <laughs> he's getting nervous. Yeah. <laughs> um, John, you mentioned everybody having their own theme music. Did you like Rude- Rick Rude's? I ha- all my comments are on that song. <laughs> <laughs> and his intro. <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, you you know what it reminds me of, and I, I'm gonna you know we're talking about different stuff. It reminds me of like he was like the template for maybe like Val Venus or okay or, yeah or something like that. You know, it's just a really dirty intro. <laughs> it's really like sultry and like film noir, but like not yeah. quite. <laughs> and it comes out of nowhere because no one else has one like that. Yeah, I mean Jimmy Garvin's is really low key, and then suddenly this is weird. Lady, it's this like really a... over the top. Yeah, like super sexy startup and then yeah like the film noir detectives opening monologue you know the rain poured down like buckets as the dame walked into my office she had a case you know yeah <laughs> i think i washed my hands after watching the, <laughs> the intro i was like i just need to need to reset here <laughs> but the the narration before it is was really bad you're so ravishing that's it was that was awesome. I, I yeah, and because I've watched the shows and he didn't use that uh, the, on the TV shows, so it was completely new to me. I did not expect That's that. Brilliant, yeah. We we were rid stitches. <laughs> okay, does he look like Freddie Mercury a little bit? A little bit, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, just, it's just with the, the mustache and and all. I can I can see. Okay, sure. And the uh, manager guy looks like Robin Williams a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So this strap match, in contrast to the collar match and the bill rope matches that we've seen before, is the touch all four corners to win type of strap match rather than the get a pin or submissions type of strap match. The sides argue first over who's going to put the strap on first, with Wahoo ultimately putting it on. The crowd screams in excitement as Rude poses for them, but they also love it when Wahoo smacks him in the butt with the strap to stop him. Weaver makes it back to the table just as the match is beginning. The two slowly pull towards each other with the strap, and Wahoo starts whipping Rude. Rude fights back, but Wahoo beats him with the strap and drags him down with it. Rude tries to roll out, but Wahoo drags him back in with the strap. Rude takes advantage with a headlock and some choking and choking with the strap, and beats Wahoo up with punches and whips with the strap in the corner, then wraps the strap around his fist for more punches. A body slam takes Wahoo down, and Rude wraps his hands up and drags him to one corner, then two, but Wahoo hooks his legs around the bottom rope, then kicks Rude down when he pulls Wahoo free. Wahoo uses strap-assisted punches, pressure with the strap, and whips to weaken Rude, and takes him down with his chop, then tries his own turnbuckle drag. He makes three corners before falling prey to exactly the same kick he used to knock down Rude. Rude goes up top for a nice leaping knee drop, but Wahoo fights out of an attempt to drag him, so Rude tries going up again, and Wahoo pulls on the strap to take him down, then hits an elbow drop. Paul Jones loses his mind outside as Wahoo drags Rude to one, two, three corners. Rude fights him on the fourth, and Jones gets up to interfere, but Wahoo knocks him down with a chop. Rude elbows Wahoo from behind, but that sends Wahoo into the last turnbuckle and gives him the win. Post-match, Jones and Rude tie Wahoo to the ropes with the strap and beat him up, but Hector Guerrero and, and the Baron run down to save Wahoo. Weaver excitedly notes that we'll get to see the match ending again in slow motion, but instead they play a replay of Guerrero and the Baron making the save. Cottle starts to recap it, then pauses as he realizes it's not what he expected, so Weaver quickly takes over but sounds rather befuddled himself. This <laughs> <laughs> was one to where the stipulation could work, and there are there are some legitimately good trap matches that work... I don't know. I want to say they work in spite of being strap matches because some do use the gimmick well. Yeah, this one was kind of okay. The film we really got watching before was that Wahoo having done so many of these and Rickford being so new in his career, Wahoo would do a spot which would then show Rude how to do it, and then Rude would do it. Yeah, which you think you cover in practice, but I guess and I guess it works in the match too. <laughs> this yeah, no, this is weird aspects to that like. Well, McDaniel's a big, strong guy. He's a football player. His whole thing is being big and tough. But he's being dragged, and he hooks his legs around the ropes. Like, you know, someone desperate to, you know, not get pulled somewhere. And it's like, I think there's a more dignified way to do that. <laughs> For a bad guy, that makes perfect sense. Like, Rick Flair and Strap match, grabbing the ropes, that makes sense. Yeah. But, yeah, it just feels weird for him to do that. And I, just, I don't like the finish, obviously. I'm glad at least they cover Rude. Because I was worried reading about it, like, Rude loses. I'm like, oh, geez, Rude losing this guy? Mm-hmm. I I guess that's the best way they could do the finish. It's the least least offensive way for it, but... I mean, it is the finish to almost every strap match you will ever see. One guy has touched three corners. The other guy tries to stop him, but accidentally knocks him into it. It's like the only way those ever end. That or the face is, is walking along, touching him, and the heel touches him without him knowing it. So they're both, their counter both going up at the same time. Yeah. But I mean, it's I I still take issue with the way that works because they stop your 
count if you're knocked down. And while he was clearly being knocked down, but somehow they count anyways. It's strange. Mm -hmm. I don't like it. No. (laughs) (laughs) Any... Anytime you have to count over three, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like some of the other implement matches. You know, I didn't see a lot of people tugging the other people off the ropes. Not that I expect Wahoo to get on the on the top rope a bunch, yeah. but um, you know, they weren't like wrapping it around them and and, and tying them to the turnbuckle or the the post yeah. or anything, and, and you know, really utilizing it. Al did mention like the mentorship, like yo, yeah, oh, Rude gets out of it, and then like maybe he'll do one other thing, and then I'll go straight to that. But th- at very few times that I can recall in the match were they ever like doing a tug of war thing. It was always within the same range of what the. Mm-hmm. So you know you didn't have that battle that, that you would normally. Have. But I guess I guess with the um, athletes being so different, maybe that's not what you should be expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I asked you this in previous years when we had a match with two people connected to each other by a length of cord. This versus Piper versus Valentine. I was trying to avoid to say that. <laughs> I was really like, I, I, I'm not going to even acknowledge it. <laughs> yeah, there's no real comparison, is there? No. no. There's no creativity to it. It's just your average strap match. Well, they even talking about them getting like rug, bur- you know, burns or whatever. But like, you know, there, there is no blood in the thing. So it's yeah. not like they're even really fulfilling that that promise or the or you know. Well, last year fulfilled their blood quota for the next uh, century. Yeah, no, so. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm not saying I want that, but I'm just saying like all the things that they they led up to. You know, I was saying like if I give, if you give me one, I'm gonna give you three kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, I didn't see any of that. Yeah, minor welts. Yeah, I don't like the four corners strap match type in general. There are a few good ones that I've seen, uh, particularly uh, Sting versus Vader at I think Super Bowl ninety three. Is it? It might be some somewhere around there. That's it's really that that one's really good, but most of them are basically this: whip each other, then drag around the corner, then whip each other, then drag around the corner. The thing I will actually say I appreciate about this one is that. There's only three attempts to do the drag. The These matches can get extremely repetitive if they go really long because you just have people making that attempt and it always stops in the same darn type of way. It just gets so boring where this at least kept it kind of short. Root's knee drop off the top is really nice, but that is, I think, the only notable spot in the match. Intro. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'll, get, I'll give the match credit for his intro as well. Yes. I do have a question about whether or not strap matches are no DQ. Because Paul Don't could definitely interfere and just doesn't. I, I guess they basically are, but I mean, he tries to interfere at the end and just gets knocked down, so. Yeah. I just feel like he could have slid into the ring and just stood in the fourth corner and blocked it. <laughs> yeah, true. I didn't think of that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so Rick Rude leaves this company for the WWF in April. Wow, that's that soon? Yep. Good gosh, I didn't. I thought, I thought he had a couple years here or something. Nope, man. We will see him in a few shows down the line again, but yeah, he's gone for a while. Aww. Yeah, like a lot of these. Here's a cool new guy. He's gone. Yeah. <laughs> well, sorry, cool film noir theme. We will never see you again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We go backstage then for an interview with the Russian team. 
Rick Stewart is uh, interviewing them. And we actually start out with silence for a bit before the sound slowly comes in as he intros the interview. <laughs> I thought this was pretty hilarious. Yeah. The the two actually do a pretty respectable job of covering a heck of a lot of topics in a pretty short time. They nicely brag about their win. They build up the upcoming bunkhouse stampede. They get across how upset they are about Nikita. They express their faith in his fighting talent. And they vow revenge. And they seem pretty dangerous and crazy, and for one at least, very Russian. Yeah. Pretty fun promo to me. Crusher still doesn't actually do an accent, but... No. But Ivan's doing the accent in spades, so... That's true. His accent for two. Yeah. <laughs> I was just giggling the whole way through it. <laughs> Fair enough. Because the, the accent is, like, way too much. <laughs> it's, it's, it's movie Russian. It's not actual Russian. It's a, like, evil movie 80s Russian villain, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I don't know. Maybe it's my pet peeve when people like intentionally like show a language barrier. <laughs> True. Yeah. You, you know, like, like you can do the accent, sure, but just don't make it seem like you know. I know that they're playing a bit and everything. <laughs> I can see that. But oh, I enjoyed it though, <laughs> as much as I could. Back at the Omni. Our next match is Sam Houston versus superstar Bill Dundee for Houston's NWA Central States Heavyweight Championship. The Central States territory was bought up by Jim Crockett Promotions. So they figure, let's let's see what we can do with this title. What's confusing is, so they had champions for their promotion. Then they're bought out. And in typical wrestling fashion, all the champions are then voided. So every title is empty. And we're gonna have new matches for them, which is weird, but I guess tradition at this point. Yeah, they had a match to determine who the Central State Heavyweight Champion would be, literally a week before this show. So yeah, six days earlier they had they declare a champion. Now they're fighting to determine who's still gonna be the champion after that show. So it was it was actually these two guys. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that seems a little repetitive. Yeah, you should be establishing the title here, not doing a rematch for the title you established one week prior. Exactly. Huh. Bill Dundee has a sparkly multicolored jacket, and Sam Houston, who I swear looks younger than last year somehow, <laughs> has an awesome, long Texas flag coat to go with his cowboy hat this year. I thought that looked really cool, actually. <clears throat> he has more more of a character, yeah. I think, this year than last year. He's gone from a three to a four, so that's something. <laughs> Let's go, Sam, chants from the crowd bemused Dundee as they start fighting, and the story of the match is set with Houston being strong and quick and Dundee being willing to fight dirty. Dundee goes for the hair early and takes brief advantage, but Houston quickly fires back and gets a hard turnbuckle whip, head scissors, which he holds and tells the ref to ask him, <laughs> and rapid arm drags and a very nice drop kick. Dundee signals for a timeout. More hair pulling from Dundee, but Houston fights back and nearly gets his bulldog. And when that doesn't work, he rapidly goes to a roll-up, which Dundee counters by pulling the tights. The ref yells at Dundee, who chucks Houston through the middle rope to the outside. You can hear a loud smack as it seems Houston hit the announce table on the way down. Mm -hmm. He's all right, though, and he sends Dundee over the railing with an atomic drop. Dundee crawls under the railing and gets back to the apron, 
and Houston brings him somersaulting over the ropes with a, whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Houston gets too eager and gets caught with a kick, and Dundee gets a nice fist drop for two. He starts doing the ask him thing, too, on a chin lock. And now when the crowd chants for Sam, Dundee yells at them. Dundee keeps control and ends up with a high-angle Boston Crab, then chokes Houston against the ropes when he powers out. Dundee chucks Houston out through the ropes again, and the ref makes him back off so Houston can get back in, so Dundee climbs the opposite turnbuckle, runs along the top rope, and jumps off to nail Houston with a double axe handle as as he gets back in. (laughs) Cool spot there, and really unexpected. I was not thinking I was going to see somebody that looked like Bill Dundee running running the top rope. That was pretty impressive. It's a different match. Houston fights back, and he gets the fans cheering, and sends Dundee reeling with big punches and a body slam. But he gets overeager again, and misses a knee drop. Dundee grabs an Indian deathlock, but Houston kicks him away, into the ref, who goes down. Houston's boot comes off in the process, and Dundee quickly grabs that most deadly of weapons, (laughs) and nails Houston with it. But the ref, getting back up, caught sight of it, and DQs Dundee. Post-match, Dundee beats Houston with his own boot and yells at the crowd, but he's already lost the match. The replay does actually show that McGowan was just barely looking that way. So yeah, he probably could actually see it (laughs) for like a split second anyway. Yeah. And it's Scrappy McGowan, the most clever and on-the-ball ref in all of wrestling history, apparently, judging from that earlier match. So Evidently, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I like the match. The thing about me is kind of weird is... So it's clear going into this match, if you read up on it, Superstar Bill Dundee has been around a while. He His wrestling career would end a few years after this, but he's still hanging around wrestling with other guys. So he's clearly here to be the solid veteran guy who works a young, energetic guy through a match. So he, so he does his flashy moves and then beats the experienced guy. The problem is that he doesn't really have any big flashy moves, really. And Bill Dundee has all the flashy moves and all the look and all the character. So it works, but only because Bill Dundee is so impressive to me. Hmm. And Sam Houston, it's not like he's bad. Well, but he's not Baron Vaughn, whatever his name was. I'm not going to try and pronounce it again. But he just, you know, he just doesn't give me much. I know, you know, he's trying. I know he's doing moves. It's just, it's such a like blank slate thing for me with him. I don't get a lot out of him. And then I have the guy doing interesting moves and taunting the crowd and wearing that bright red, the very pants he was wearing. Yes, true. But for me, he takes over the entire match. So it worked, but it works in the opposite way it's supposed to work. Hmm. I agree with Al on some of that. Like, you know, he did, you know, he had that good flying elbow and, uh, you know, he's he's working the crowd for a little bit. Um, but, you know, he the match seems to go in waves where Dundee just continues just punching him a bunch and like it gets dull at that point, but you know, then they have Houston do something else. So, you know, I did see a little bit of a, uh, a back and forth, but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I like the, the, the ref getting bumped and then like, how is hitting someone with their boot like worth the DQ? I mean, it's got to hurt less. Know. It's got to hurt less than uh, actually having a foot in it, you know, and delivering a kick. But yeah. whatever. One well, also, why is it a DQ? That's the other point of it as well. Well, you're using a, a foreign object. A weapon. 
Well, he knows what it is. We were wearing it a minute ago. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You should maybe BQ once you kick somebody. Yeah, none of this boot stuff makes any sense to me, and it happens all throughout wrestling. We will be, we will be harping on this every show, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Ending aside, this was a really good match. I thought, like you said, Dundee Dundee is quite good, and I really liked that. He showed his like increasing annoyance with Houston and with the crowd as the sure. match went on, yeah. where he's kind of kind of more bemused by it at the beginning, but he gets more vicious and annoyed as it becomes clear that he's not winning as yeah. easily as he wanted. His rope run spot was really impressive, and I was not expecting it at all. No, not at all. Houston, I actually thought was really good. I really, really enjoyed his work this year. I felt like he had much more to him than the previous year. Some more polished moves going on. Uh, last year, he felt a little awkward here or there. This time, it felt like everything was quick and snappy, and he was doing it all quite well. Um, his punches are pretty great in particular. I think he does a great job with those. I'm I'm a little torn on the ending, just because I felt like it could have been something more definitive. But I did actually like how it fit in with Dundee's story in the match of getting more and more irritated. And he kind of starts out getting more vicious and then starts not thinking Mm-hmm. I think as he as he does things in the match, and so it's just him having that last moment where he doesn't think, and just instinctively grabs the boot and smacks him, and that ends up costing him. I hate the boot, yeah, thing, but I like the idea of the finish, where it's like he just instinctively goes for this. Ah, oh, the ref's down. I'll cheat, but yeah. the ref's not actually down, so they cost him, which I thought was kind of a a different way of doing that finish, at least. Yeah, no, I. I... Yeah, the way it played out was weird to me, yeah. but I, I understand your point on that. Yeah. It is still a non-finish for what had been actually a pretty nice match between these two. So I think in the long, in the grand scheme of things, it does drag it down a little bit, just not as much as I was expecting to when I first saw it. Oh, it's a DQ. So yeah. I just feel like if they had, like I'm at four, if they had done the actual title win match here, yes, you would have presumably I would just I would think a pretty similar match in style wise and everything. But you would have had a clean finish, and I don't know what the how they worked the finish in the actual yeah. match. I haven't seen it, but I assume it's relatively clean. It has to it has to be it's a pinfall. Yeah, you could have that finish on here instead of the one we got. Yeah, you do this match as for the title, and do this exact same match, but Houston gets a definitive win in the ending, and I think it's even better. Yes, I will note if you know older wrestling, Dundee worked a lot with Jerry Lawler oh, in okay. Memphis. Which would explain the bright, flashy outfit and the fist drop. Yes, and the haunted the crowd because they were. Memphis is not super great on like athletic wrestling, but it's really strong in character work. Yes, I didn't make the association with Lawler until you said that. Like, like as far as a wardrobe choice. Yeah, but you can definitely see it once you know that, right? Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Oh, I can see it. I was just kind of trying to figure out <laughs> what it was, but. Um... No, I I think there was a genuine frustration. I mean, I, I mean, he at least he played that part, and maybe the <laughs> the um, using the boot or whatever, which might have slipped off accidentally. I don't know. Is it like I think a, that's the idea? It, it, no, I mean, like he he's playing oh. out that frustration, and maybe it was intended for Houston to to come back, you know, know. and he was just trying to fulfill his role as a heel. I mean, there are cases in wrestling where. Wrestlers do something and the referee sees it and the ref, the refs are in some cases, by my understanding, instructed to call the match as mm-hmm. though it were real. So if you see someone cheating, DQ them. 
So, I mean, that's always possible. I think in this case, it feels like that spot is set up so that the boot will come off. But yeah, you know, it's always a possibility. These two would keep fighting over the Central States title now in JCP, and Dundee would eventually win the title in January. And are you kidding me? Nope. <laughs> January again. The cursed month is back. At least, at least it's not because Houston gets injured, right? No. Okay. That, no. <laughs> at least there's that. It's a, just a storyline thing. Yes. <laughs> Our next match is back at the Coliseum. And this time we have Jimmy Valiant with Big Mama versus Paul Jones in a hair versus hair match it's for Big Mama's hair, not Jimmy Valiant's for some reason, with evil Manny Fernandez locked in a cage. Jimmy Valiant versus Paul Jones again. Yep. Why? Okay. So as I mentioned, there's the very first show I watched in the buildup is the one that they was tape before the Magnum thing. So they proudly announced on that show the first match for Starcade. And they got to a video package announcing this match. Oh my gosh. This was the this was the first match they announced for the show. This is going in, you know, this is why you're paying to watch the show. Apparently. <sighs> so the build up is that throughout basically all of nineteen eighty six, the Be Valiant have been fighting Paul Jones in some way through associates and stuff like that. Before when the Great American bashes, he's teamed up with Shaska Watley, then known as Pez Watley, which I, I think is a better name than Shaska, personally. And in a promo before the match, he talks about how Pez Watley is one of the best up-and-coming African-American wrestlers, which apparently super sets off Pez Watley in, in storyline, who then takes a bribe and turns on him in a match and joins Paul Jones' army, and then at a later show, during actually on the Great American Bash Tour, it's Jimmy Valiant against Paul Jones, both hairs against each other. And in that match, Manny Fernandez turns on him. If people keep betraying Jimmy Valiant, it's probably the beard and just everything about him yeah. does that. So he loses his hair to Paul Jones, and then goes away for a little while, presumably to wrestle in other territories for a bit. So then they run this video package on that first show, as I mentioned, where he's apparently despondent and he's sitting outside a bar and what looks like somewhere off of the set of uh, Blues Brothers. And Big Mama drives up in her like, 70s Cadillac. <laughs> it's crazy. She's trying to trying to get him out of his funk. And she says that she gave him one last shot and she's putting her hair up against Paul Jones's hair. Uh, okay, so it's and, her idea at least. Correct. Okay. They then spend... Three weeks of shows after that, saying the exact same line over and over and over again about her, which, whether it's Rick Rude, whether it's uh, Mayor Fernandez, or whether it's even Paul Jones, they refer to her as her becoming a, quote, bald-headed geek. <laughs> That's apparently the only line they know to make fun of people for losing their hair. It's message focus. Yeah. So just every promo was that, and then the things they say about Wally McDaniel. Really repetitive watching promos in the build-up of this show. <laughs> so yeah, this is supposed to be the big blow-off to like a two-and-a-half-year off-and-on feud with Paul Jones and Jimmy Valiant. The show's chopped up a bit in the version on the network, so we get the start of Valiant's music, then a snap cut to the participants already in the ring, which was a little weird. 
Both sides amusingly mime shaving hair at each other as the ring announcer introduces the match. Jones and Fernandez shake their heads and mouth no at the news that by contractual agreement, Fernandez is going to be suspended in a cage high above the ring. So did they not read the contract then? Oh no, they had. It was, it, was, it was mentioned in promo, but then I guess yeah. they assumed it wouldn't be followed up on. It probably shouldn't come as a surprise, but it seems like they're surprised at it. Not just disagreeing with it, but actually surprised. It is weird, yes. <laughs> Jimmy Valiant is in costume as Halloween this year. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Paul Jones, knowing Jimmy Valiant's love of ripping tuxes off people, has come in wrestling tights instead this year. Fernandez tries to sit in a chair outside and gets in ref Earl Hebner's face, but Nelson Royal and Tim Horner, along with the Baron, come down to fight him into the cage. Fernandez fights all of them off, only for Wahoo McDaniel to come down and chop him, which sends him falling into the cage. Jones comes over and tries to drag the cage back down as it gets raised into the air, but he gets dragged off and goes into the ring. Valiant beats Jones up with ease to start, ignoring Jones' blows entirely and just punching him and tossing him around the ring. Caudle tells us that losing Big Mama's hair to Jones would be the worst thing ever for Valiant, and that he's been depressed over the events of the feud with Jones. Valiant punches Jones in the corner and gets more aggressive, going for some choking, but Hebner pushes him away and Jones takes advantage of the distraction to get an object from his tights and smack Valiant in the face with it. Jones hides the object and mimes shaving to Big Mama, then lands kicks, knee drops, and punches on the fallen Valiant, then confidently goes for the pin. He gets two, and he freaks out at Hebner. Jones hits Valiant again and goes for another pin, but Valiant gets his foot on the ropes just before three. Jones tries a knee drop, but Valiant moves his leg out of the way, and Jones hurts his leg. Limping, Jones gets the object out again and hides it as Valiant comes in, then sucker punches him again. With his leg hurt, he's slow to cover, and he gets two. He goes for an Indian deathlock, but Valiant punches him away, gets up, and gets his energy back, battering Jones with punches. A sleeper threatens to put Jones away, so he goes for the object, but Valiant sees it and pushes him away. Jones drops the object, and Valiant snatches it up and nails Jones in the face with it, getting the three. Valiant does still have the object in clear view of the ref during the count, mind. He does at least think to hide it afterwards. Post-match, Valiant gets clippers and shaves Jones' head, while Fernandez's cage lowers. The shaving does not look like a pleasant experience. Jones' face is visibly pained, and I'm not sure that that's all acting. No. Hebner lets Fernandez out of the cage, and he runs in to attack Valiant, hitting rapid knee drops. Rude comes down and joins in, and Fernandez hits his flying forearm while Rude holds Valiant up. Fernandez gets a chair and helps Rude do a DDT type of move to take Valiant down on the chair. Rude and Fernandez cover up Jones' head and take him out of the arena, and Big Mama comes in to check on Valiant, along with Wahoo and the Baron. Valiant lies unconscious for a while, and Hebner comes to check, too. Slowly, Valiant regains consciousness and rolls over, and Wahoo and the Baron help him sit up and get out of the ring, then support him walking backstage. So I don't generally do a second watch, so I remember what I remember from watching the first time. I don't really completely forgotten the foreign object spot. Maybe because my brain is trying to wipe the match out. <laughs> and it was my next pick, I might remember I actually did a match here. But no, I, I remember not you said it, but I didn't remember writing my notes for it at all. Wow. I also forgot how overdramatic the finish is, where after the match is over, they beat up Jimmy Valley, and then it's like, will he be okay? Will he be okay? And I'm like, eh. 
<laughs> I'm not that interested in clearly. I know Paul Jones used to be a wrestler, and clearly that shows in certain parts mm-hmm. in the match, which he brags about, but he's still finding Jimmy Valiant. Jimmy Valiant, even at this point, doesn't really give a lot, honestly. I guess I could say it's better than their first match with each other at Starcade, but that's not a bar I want to set for matches in general. I was excited and equally disappointed when the music was cut out abruptly. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was glad that I didn't have to endure the entire thing, but I kind of wanted a little bit of it. You know, it was just enough yeah. to think about it. Um, I loved the Halloween attire. It was like, you know, there's always something unexpected. The whole Raging Bull thing was as long as the match. True. True. Yeah. You know, a while. there was more emphasis on that than I think the actual match. I knew that, you know, things were going to be in Valiant's favor once he had someone on the, on the side with, and, you know, the other guy had no distraction or ally. I like that at the very end, like immediately, he's cutting off his hair. Yes. And I was expecting to like a Norelco commercial or something like, you know, some sort of <laughs> where they were going to talk about the Clippers, you know, because the, Crockett is looking for sponsors. <laughs> and you can find that at Sears. Um, but no, I, I I didn't mind it so much. It was short. It was I don't know if you would say it was sweet. You know, I, I like seeing Valiant because he just reminds me look at this crazed old man that would do things. <laughs> so there is that. So for for you, was it better or worse than the last time they fought at eighty four? There's less top hats in this one. And uh, and less stripping. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan. Yeah, <laughs> I like the I, no. I, I like I said, I was glad this one was abrupt, just like the theme song. <laughs> yeah. So this kind of shocks me, but I actually really liked this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I have not been a huge fan of Jimmy Valiant over the years, but this is the first time that he felt like he was actually the good guy in the match no rather than us being told that he was the good guy and him cheating first and and everything (laughs) you know true this felt more like an actual match than the last time they fought It, it still feels like wrestler versus manager but it feels like wrestler versus manager that isn't as insanely one sided as the first time Jones does have to cheat to get advantage but once he does he gets some real offense in and it looks like Valiant is in trouble so this ended up feeling about as good to me as the Dylan versus Bass match last year that I liked. Not a great match, but entertaining enough. Like I said, without as many of, of the how is Valiant the good guy spots. Mm-hmm. I do feel it's a little weird that Paul Jones has Paul Jones's army and only Manny Fernandez is down there to get locked in the cage. It's like, why don't you just bring down the other guys? And maybe they could have done a spot with the other guys trying to get in the face wrestlers fight them off while the while the match goes on in the ring. Sure. But of the four Jimmy Valiant matches I've seen, this is, I guess I'd say second best. The one last year edges it out just because of Ron Garvin's really awesome timing on that final punch. It's easily Jimmy Valiant's most likable performance, though. Does that mean Jimmy Valiant is growing on me? Uh, well, let's hope so. <laughs> I mean, that's a good thing, right? I don't know. I'm questioning some of my life choices now. Well, it was a short match, and it, there was plenty of, of energy in it. So, you yes. know, hey, this one made it enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, I was surprised to see Rude 
afterwards beaten on Valiant. And for some reason, I think they would be teamed up on the same side. I can actually see that, the their two styles. as mm-hmm. At the very least, Valiant's the guy that Rude brings around to make him look better. I don't know. Yeah. The other thing I did mention before during Rude's match is that Rude finished at this point as a DDT called the Rude Awakening. As soon as he goes to WF for the next year, it's a neckbreaker, also called the Rude Awakening. I guess they weren't copywriting the name move names at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the most logical way to think the name is it's, Oh, it's totally, it makes perfect sense why you would name it that. It's just yeah. funny that it's exactly the same in both promotions. I would have thought they would be different. <laughs> Valiant finally leaves in 1987. You're welcome, Bob. <laughs> uh, despite my newfound kind of appreciation for him, I'm kind of glad that we're done with Jimmy Valiant. He can go out on a reasonably high note for me. There you go. Next up... <laughs> We get a stunning video package mm-hmm. about the upcoming second Bunkhouse Stampede, which involves, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, which involves Nelson Royal from our first match of the night, sitting in front of a campfire, dressed in full cowboy garb and drinking coffee while a guitar gently strums. He drones on and on and on about how they used to fight things out on the trail, and we see shots of the first Bunkhouse Stampede match, which is basically a big battle royale with weapons. This was long and boring. This was anti-promotion. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a battle royale with weapons in it. You shouldn't really need to do much promotion for it, but somehow yeah. this made me want to watch the match less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. Tony then tells us we're taking a short intermission. After the long video. <laughs> Why was the video not the intermission? <laughs> well, they they want you to stay and watch this, man. No, I don't want to. I liked it. You did? Because I think I think it's the origin of when John Oliver does all these paid promotions with a, a Cowboy Explains things. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Yeah. This is like where they got I the idea. <laughs> yeah, this for me was pretty painful. And it's just like, this has nothing to do with the actual show that we're watching. Okay. yeah. I'm going to be honest. I did fast forward just a little bit during this part. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be better if they at least weren't having this, the most gentle guitar in the universe playing in the background. <laughs> the big bloody brawl going on. Yeah. And do 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 do. Yeah. If it was the uh, Shake Hands with Danger theme, I'd be up for it. Do 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 do. Yeah. I feel like on this show, they're like... People are actually watching. We need to promote everything we're doing in the next yes. year at the expense and runtime of the show. Yeah. Speaking of, mm-hmm. coming back, Tony talks about the Jim Crockett Senior Memorial Cup Tag Team Tournament and throws to another video package. This one at least does not feature a cowboy droning on in front of a campfire. It just goes right to the matches of the last year's cup and shows up some clips. It is far far too long. Yes. But it is kind of cool to see some of the participants. The sheep herders are there, pre-Bushwhacker days. And uh, so is Tiger Mask from Japan. He is, yeah. Who looks awesome. I have never been more glad to hear the Starcade theme in my life, as it means we're back to the actual show that we're watching. These packages together take up a full ten minutes of the show. Our next match is back at the Omni. And is Big Bubba Rogers with Jim Cornette versus Ron Garvin in a Louisville street fight. What is a Louisville street fight? It's a street fight. I don't know. 
that involves Louisville somehow. Planes. If they'd use a bat or something, that would make sense. It would make sense, yeah. Big Bubba Rogers, of course, is much more famous as the Big Boss Man in the WWF. He is very, very new here. He's only been wrestling for about a year. Yes. Ron Garvin, of course, is much more famous to us anyway as Miss Atlanta Lively from Starcade 85. Yep, that's true. <laughs> Big Bubba Rogers is really new. He actually came into JCP under Wrestling's actual name. Was a you know, generic enhancement talent. He comes out, gets beat up by Ron Garvin and such. Dusty Rhodes saw him, recognized what he thought was a spark of talent, quickly pulled him off TV, and then brought him back in as the bodyguard for Jim Cornette. So, kind of like how we've had the Paul Jones Army thing, we've had people around Cornette and the Midnight Express feuding with each other. So, that's where that comes in. So Ron Garvin wants to get his hands on your Cornette, so his bodyguard fights him, and that's where we have the match now. John, I have to ask you, was Big Bubba Rogers' theme the your favorite theme of the night? Yes. I mean, the Peter Gunn theme, the bastardized version or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. I, was gonna say, I wonder if they would just, just change it just enough to not get copyright issues. Oh, yeah. That's something they will do many times over the years. Yeah, I was thinking, I, the moment that came, I was like, this sounds so Blues Brothers. Well, he even kind of <laughs> looked it with like the hat. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he looks either Blues Brothers or the boss's big tough thug from, you know, any random 80s action movie. Yeah. No, I picked it up right away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good look that Bubba had with the full outfit on. Oh, yeah, for sure. Jim Cornette, of course, gives his intro. <laughs> so a Louisville street fight is a street fight where you can lose by pinfall or 10 count. Ron peppers Bubba with punches to start and Bubba can't get his hands on him. Eventually, he does, and he chucks Ron outside. Cornette claims that Ron was trying to run away. <laughs> Bubba throws Ron out a second time after some big clubbing strikes, so Ron grabs a drink from the announce table and throws it in Bubba's face to blind him and get a long series of punches in. Cornette hands Bubba a roll of coins, and Bubba eventually gets a chance to use it. That earns an eight count before Ron's up, so Bubba knocks him right back down for another, then body slams and splashes Ron for a two-count pin attempt and an eight-count again. Ron grabs a rope and chokes Bubba, then tries to tie him up. Bubba gets free and catches Ron with strikes and a lifting bear hug, which they work around for a bit. Tony tells us he's never witnessed such a brutal, violent match for a long time. Is is a year really that long? Mag Magnum versus Tony. Yeah. You can't have forgotten, Tony. <laughs> Only match has seen someone bleeding from the arm. Yeah. I think that's every single match that Bray Wyatt's in because of his confusing arm tattoo, but... Yes. There's <laughs> a problem. Ron gets free via headbutts, and both are bleeding as Ron punches Bubba out of the ring. Cornette yells, Bubba, fight back! Bubba obliges, and dazes Ron with a knee strike and throws him back in the ring, but he's too slow going up to the top turnbuckle and he gets hurled off. Ron gets a one count on a pin attempt, and Bubba hurls him off on top of ref Tommy Young, who passes out. Ron hits the scariest pile driver I have ever seen on Bubba, but Cornette nails him with the tennis racket. Young wakes up, and he starts counting. Young reaches ten with both down, and declares that there must be a winner, so the first man to his feet wins the match. Cornette gets in to encourage Bubba, but gets in Young's face and gets shoved down. So he rolls out, and Ron starts to regain consciousness, 
But as he gets up, Bubba grabs Young's arm to stop him from seeing, and Cornette nails Ron in the leg with the racket to knock him back down. Bubba gets up and wins the match. Post-match, Cornette flees with Bubba, and we get a replay of the pile driver I never wanted to see again in my life, and Cornette elaborately loading the tennis racket and then smacking Ron with the racket. Honestly, I liked it a lot better than I thought I was going to. I mean, reading there's a street fight between Ron Garvin and Big Bubba, thinking, oh, geez, this is going to be real slow and plotting. This will be really interesting. There's enough little touches in there, like the drink throwing and moves they do, that I think definitely benefit from Ron Garvin being the other person in the match. Mm-hmm. Because Bubba is there because he has a sort of presence and he can do a couple moves that you wouldn't expect him to, be able to do. You obviously get more of that later when he starts doing spin kicks, which is pretty impressive. Yes. And doing more arrow moves. But yeah, it, it kind of worked for me in a way that some of these other matches where it's the veteran guy and the young, impressive guy they're building up for the future. It worked better for me than some of those did. Okay. I actually, yeah, I mean, and they, the other thing too is they really gimmick the whole thing up with the finish of them both being down. I will say the Paul Driver is a little scary, but in a way I like the buildup where he tries to pull him up by the belt. They feel like he really earned the move. I, I like that, yeah. I just think it looks like it lands maybe a little badly. But it doesn't seem to. They seem like they're yeah. okay. And I've I've seen some go far, far yes, worse yeah, than that. Yeah. But yeah, no, no, that didn't bother me that much. One of the, uh, they protected Ron Garvin really well there as well with the both knockdown and then the count and mm-hmm. the track roof thing. No, I liked a lot better than I thought I was gonna do, honestly. It's okay. better in execution than on paper. Alright. I did like the match, uh, although when looking at my notes, I think I was a little more critical of Bubba than I should have been. I mean, Garvin did throw a bunch of punches, and um, Bubba does sell it, you know, I mean, as much as you can, but it looks like he's leaning into every punch. <laughs> <laughs> True. Like, and then, and then after he leans into the punch, it doesn't affect him until he decides to sway the other way. But he did a decent job selling it, you know, having that disparity or the difference in size. I'm glad they hug it out. <laughs> towards the end this is about the point where i was i was losing consciousness because of sleep deprivation so <laughs> the, the last note i have is uh bubba casually exists his way to victory <laughs> 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 and uh that pile driver was pretty impressive i was not expecting that okay i did not particularly like this one i i could i can definitely see what both of you guys are saying that there, there, they do actually quite a lot over the course of the match. It just for me, it did feel very, very slow. There are points of the match that I really did like. There, I like the bit where um, Cornette just you know starts yelling at Bubba, "Fight him, fight him!" But you know, outside the ring, and Bubba does actually just like get a little more intense there and start coming after him some more and all. The crowd seems to be reacting to it well. It just feels like they're trying to build this as like this is a blood feud kind of feel to it, but it just doesn't have that. It feels more like two guys just kind of drunkenly brawling. What I will compliment the match on quite a bit is the ending. That that ending, I think, is really, really nicely done. It, it worked pretty well. I think they time it very nicely with mm-hmm. uh, you know Young being in exactly the right position for Bubba to, to reach up and grab him at exactly the right moment. And Cornette just sneaking around and hitting hitting Ron in the in the leg with the tennis racket was pretty amusing. Like, oh, there he is, you know. So if they trim down the rest of the match a little bit, maybe I think I'd like it better. But as it is, it's just it's kind of a good ending on top of a rather dull match for me. 
one they could have done, they probably helped your view of it, was if they did what they tried doing with the Dick Slater match from 84, where he really wants to get at J.J. Dillon. Yes. And they play up that aspect of it. Now, you don't have to do that too much where he will stop the match for, but a time or two where if he's really going after Cornette, maybe, that might sell that story a little more for you. Yeah. Yeah, more more Jim Cornette involvement in the match would be no bad thing. Right. The other thing I was going to say, there's a interesting bit of accidental foreshadowing that Jim Cornette helps Big Bubba win a match by attacking the guy's leg. Point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is not planned, but it does happen. <laughs> they basically keep this sort of alliance going. They figure Big Bubba is really good with Cornette. Mm-hmm. He's even on next year's show, he's still aligned with Cornette, so they keep it going for a while. After the first War Games match that they have during the Great American Bash tour, a couple of were actually injured in that match, the, the very first one, including Dylan and Rusty Rhodes, I believe. So they sub people out for the later ones, sort of to let them ease into it. And at one point, they sub out Dylan for a masked wrestler called War Machine, who is sadly not in you know full Iron Man armor, but he, <laughs> but he is Big Bubba. That's that's cool. I can see him being pretty good in one of those, actually, even at this stage in his career. Yeah, so he has that to look forward to today, so he gets to be in War Games. Yeah. See? Good for him. Now we go back to the Coliseum for Tully Blanchard with J.J. Dillon versus Dusty Rhodes in a first blood match for Dusty's NWA World Television Championship. Tully is the first of the four horsemen faction to have a match tonight. So at this point, I think we should take a a moment to kind of discuss them a bit. Sure. Formed in late 1985, the group of Arn Anderson, Ole Anderson, Tully Blanchard, and Ric Flair began going by the name Four Horsemen, referencing, of course, the biblical Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Managed by J.J. Dillon, they are a huge part of the year 1986, and they're generally focused on keeping the title around Flair's waist by injuring anyone who might be coming after him and cheating in his matches. There are many incarnations of the group throughout the time that we're covering, with many different members. The Flair is pretty constant, and Arn is in nearly every one. It's one of the most famous factions that were clever, and despite its villainous origins, it kind of becomes a symbol of WCW's history and tradition as the years go on. Uh, I also have to mention, it has one of my personal favorite wrestling entrance themes in oh, the yeah. mid-90s. It's this beautiful, like, dark guitar solo type of, type of thing. It's really mm. a cool theme. I will also mention that the Forestmen are currently the only faction inducted in the Hall of, WB Hall of Fame as a group. DX and Nibiru are not in, in the Hall of Fame yet, but Forestmen are officially in the Hall oh, of Fame. Oh, interesting. That's how Ric Flair is a two-time Hall Hall of Famer. He has one himself, one with the Forestman. Cool. So as you mentioned, the Forestmen were a big part of this. Dusty's constantly a thorn in their side, and they're thorn in his. Dusty's essentially put in this spot where he's fighting the Forestman, but he's not fighting Flair. With the one exception in the middle of the year, and other parts like that. So he's there, it's like the sort of the backbone of the undercard, if you will, of the Forestman. Um, and the build-up to this, they had... Dusty loses cool and attack Tully's leg dramatically. And in return, they do a really weird bit where it, they try to make it feel very real. So it's like it's filmed like handheld camera by, I assume, Tully or someone else in the car. 
and then like drive up to where Dusty is showing up a studio and attack him. And they do a bit where they like hold his hand still, and they supposed to be hitting with a chair or some sort of object. And when the camera goes to cut to, they just black it out, implying it's like covered in blood or like <laughs> bone or something, which probably means nothing actually happened to his hand. Yeah. So that's now the TV tile champion. They're fighting over that. We get purple smoke and blue lighting, and the ever-present Starcade theme welcomes Tully Blanchard, his wonderful black and silver robe, and J.J. Dillon to the ring. Dillon gives Tully some advice as they wait. Then we cut backstage, and some country rock music starts up as Dusty's locker room door finally opens and he marches down the hallways backstage on his way to the ring. We get more smoke as he comes out. We get a good shot of the side of his face as the fans erupt, and we see that he's written Tully above each ear. That's a little odd, but nicely he's wearing a Magnum TA t-shirt in tribute. That's pretty awesome of him, I gotta say. Mm -hmm. So this is a first blood match. The first person to bleed loses. J.J. Dillon tries putting some head protection on Blanchard, but Dusty catches him and Hebner makes him take it off. So instead, Dillon slathers Vaseline all over Blanchard's face. Hebner wipes it off. Dillon makes the mistake of going to yell at Dusty and gets the bionic elbow as his reward. It gets him bleeding. I thought that was a good way to sell how dangerous that move could be for Tully in the match. Mm -hmm. We see it draw blood immediately after being hit, so we know if Dusty hits it just right... That could be all over for Tully. Yeah, exactly. The crowd chants for Dusty as they circle. They're tentative to start, each knowing that a single blow in the right place could end the match. Eventually, Tully gets Dusty into a corner. Dusty goes for the elbow, and Tully runs. Tully keeps trying to advance in various ways, but Dusty, clearly enjoying himself, keeps putting the elbow up, and Tully scampers away every time, even finally rolling out of the ring on a particularly close call. A headbutt from Dusty gets ref Earl Hebner to check both men, but no one's bleeding yet. Dusty gets Tully in the corner for some strikes, but Tully skillfully protects his head so only lower chops land. Tully tries a leg takedown, and Dusty lands the elbow, but doesn't get Tully quite right. Dusty gets mega cheers for grabbing Tully's leg, and drops a couple elbows before going after Tully's face again. Tully rolls out and tries a wild uppercut when he gets back in. Getting Dusty down, he claws at Dusty's face, but Dusty fights free and lands a massive swinging double-axe handle that sends Tully end over end. Dusty smashes Tully into the turnbuckle, but Dylan grabs Dusty's leg to trip him into Hebner, knocking Hebner down. Dylan tosses Tully his shoe, that most deadly of weapons, and Tully jumps off the turnbuckle with it, but Dusty catches him and suplexes him right into poor Hebner. Dusty grabs the shoe but tosses the deadly weapon aside and hits the elbow instead then pounds on Tully's forehead with punches, getting him bleeding. But the ref's out. Dylan quickly wipes Tully off, applies Vaseline, and hands him a roll of coins, and Tully slugs Dusty with the coins to get him bleeding. Dusty falls by Hebner, who wakes up, sees him bleeding, and rings the bell. Dusty howls in anger as Tully scampers with Dylan. Dusty tries to explain to Hebner, but Hebner doesn't agree, and Dusty shoves him out of the ring. So, I'm of two minds on this. During this purely as a match, it's really not that good because they stall and they stall and they stall. They only mm. do a few moves, really. On the other hand, it's 100% strong story. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really a good way to use Dusty at this point because I'm not saying he can't wrestle at this point. Obviously, he can. He wrestles for like six more years after this, but... It's clear at this, that, you know, at this point he's throwing it more limited what he can do 
longevity wise, like, you know, the longer the match goes, the harder it gets for him. And understandably so, he's getting older and he's a bigger guy. It's just how that works. So it's a good way to use him, but yeah, it's, it's like, I can't quite agree with myself on whether it's good or not. <laughs> That's kind of the way it is because it's so overly worked and prepared and gimmicked that I shouldn't like it. But it's everything they do is done so well that I can't really hate it either. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that 100% at any given time. I kind of sway back and forth. <laughs> Dusty has grown. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like um, a little bit of Rodney Dangerfield at this point. Um, I like, but it, it shows in his wrestling too. Like he throws Tully around like a ragdoll a few times in the thing. Like mm-hmm. you know, It's just like, okay, well, there's some power behind this and some weight. I, I don't know if I like the ending because I wrote down uh, Tully uh, hits him with uh, JJ's paymaker and uh, <laughs> the I think the the um, ref getting knocked down was was could have been sold a little bit better because mm-hmm. he just like you know flops and just like grazes the ref and he's oh he's hurt he's hurt yeah but the the suplex uh, right after that was done well yeah. For me, this was simple, but it was a lot of fun. Dusty and Tully are both great characters, so is J.J. Dillon. And like you said, there's a really, really strong story to the match. If Dusty gets a solid hit with the elbow, it's all over. But there's still enough room for a twist, and they execute the twist pretty well, I think, overall. There's some neat spots in the match. I really like Dusty catching Tully out of the corner and transitioning into the suplex. That was really cool. And the spots with the dodging around the elbow strike at the beginning were really funny and some great storytelling and dusty clearly having a good time doing it. So they knew what they had to get across and they got what they had to get across across. Even if there's not a lot of complexity to this, it feels like a good focus match. That's really easy to enjoy for me. Yeah. They could have done this match without the first blood simulation. And maybe just sold that Dusty's gotten so good to the Bionic Elbow, he can knock you out if he hits you right. I could see that, And too. so, you have to make him a gimmick match, just make it a regular match, and you can have all the same stuff happen, but you don't have the ref constantly checking for blood, you don't have all the silly stuff they do, which is, again, it it works, but it is silly. Yeah, it it is, but it's, I mean, for me, that was actually part of the fun of this one, though. I think first blood matches are a little bit silly, so if you're doing one, just kind of lean into it a bit, and they did. Mm. It sounds weird to say a match where your goal is to make someone bleed is silly, but, I mean, making someone bleed happens in every mat- every wrestling match, so the fact that you're making it your goal in this one is a little goofy. They really kind of leaned into it and played around with the idea and did the Vaseline thing and the headgear thing and the dodging around the elbow and all this stuff, so it all worked pretty well to me. Mm. I guess I had the same question about this that they had the strap match. Is it no DQ? I think with this one, it actually um, Dylan's not entirely healthy after the beginning mm-hmm. of it, so it makes a little more sense that he doesn't jump in. Uh, at, no, at I get first, that part but, yeah. of it. But they make a point of doing the silver dollar punch, which is somehow super effective. Yeah. D while the ref's down. And of course, they mentioned the previous match when they do it with Cornette, you do that, and the whole they spill over the yeah. ring, and the ref someone doesn't notice this. It's kind of funny. So if, yeah. if it is no D, if it is a DQ match, you'd be like, "Wait, what are these coins doing?" Yeah, I would assume it's these? I would assume it's first blood and no DQ then. But yeah, so the ref bump is there, so the ref doesn't see the initial bleeding. I get that. Yeah, but it's, 
It still makes know. sense why they need the ref bump in this one rather than like whip and chain bit in the right. earlier match. It's like, why does the ref have to not see that as blatantly no DQ? But this one, it's if he sees Tully bleeding, then Tully loses the match. So, of course, you want to bump the ref still. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm torn in this match because the it's so much stalling and so much silliness to what should be, we would think it'd be a serious mm-hmm. match between Desiris and, and, um, Play Blanchard, rather. And over one of their big titles as well. Yeah. But I don't hate it. Like I said, I'm, I'm torn on it. Yeah. It's controversial. Sure. I thought the ref was going to check Tully. Like, you know, when he was stumbling back away. I th- yeah. I thought they was going to check and make sure that it was like, oh, there's blood. Obviously, I mean, they sold that pretty strongly. Dylan also hustles him out of the ring really fast. He doesn't even let the ref have time to see if... Tully was bleeding first. Obviously, it's not a common thing, but the last time we saw Tully Blanchard was that match with MTA, yeah. where he's bleeding from the arm. Yes. But yeah, this match is all, don't hit the head, because that's the only place you can bleed from, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And clearly, you can bleed from the arm, because he did it last last show. Yep. But I'm also glad they don't. that's not a regular thing people do. Yes. It's just funny, because it's the same guy where that happened to, yeah. but now they act like it can't happen. Dusty keeps feeding with the Four Horsemen... And that leads into War Games at the next American Bash. Oh, okay. Our next match is back at the Omni. This is the match that the show was named for, the Skywalkers match. We have the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, with Paul Ellering, versus the Midnight Express, beautiful Bobby Eaton and lover boy Dennis Condry, with Jim Cornette and Big Bubba Rogers, in a Skywalkers match, which is a scaffold match. Have I mentioned that I'm afraid of heights? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Come in day six, the Road Warriors have come in, and they are a scary team everywhere they go. They went the AWA, they've gone through every promotion up until this point, except WF, where they'll go to in a couple years. And so Cornette has the Express attack them outside of the ring, basically to ward off the threat coming from the future. They, of course, recover, then surround the show, and they decided to have the Skywalkers match, having a very bizarre promo where they walk around in normal clothes, but with their face paint on. As one does. As one does, yes. At a construction site where they crawl up a scaffold and start dropping watermelons and pumpkins off of the thing to show the danger of falling. Okay. It also leaves some really funny bits where Jim Cornette is... Telling you not to chant, you being the live audience, that is, which is intentionally done so they will chant it. Well, of course, yeah. I've seen him do, he does it a couple times in the buildup. He goes, you know, everywhere I go, people can call me Watermelon Head because of that that video package. And I don't want people doing that. I don't want people calling me Watermelon Head, like accenting it. And sure enough, they start doing it after he says it. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. But there's, but like before he does it in the promo, no one was doing it. Like, stop doing that thing that you're about to do now. It's just kind of funny. It's like they would kind of hand out signs to like the people in the audience that say watermelon head or have like a drawings. Exactly. Yeah. He also had a video package run where he in the build up said, I'm, I'm going to show you my guys doing all these great moves. They're going to look out. I'm not going to prove they're not scared of it. And of course the video they play is them being scared to climb up it and then 
not want to go up there <laughs> and everything. He even complains about how he his mother paid all this money to buy a scaffold and use his time in an empty studio to do it. He then, after they run the video package, says, well, they didn't show the part afterwards. They start doing all the moves. And I run that next week. And surprise, surprise, he did not run that video next week. <laughs> yeah, Cornette is a great, like, BS manager that oh, just is wonderful. So I'm not surprised he had some good, good bits leading up to this. He's the best part of the buildup, for sure. We get more laser lights as the Midnight Express make their entrance. Dennis Condry has dressed as America, but the crowd still boos. Nice try. <laughs> Very awesome 80s rock music starts up that sounds like a Mega Man stage theme. <laughs> and it welcomes yeah. the Road Warriors as Pyro goes off behind them. I'm not sure if this theme is dubbed in or not, because I've heard at some point that they were using Iron Man for their theme. Mm-hmm. So I could see you needing to dub that out if they were using it at this point, but... Maybe they'd stop by now. Yeah, if you could find a video of this that's not from the W Network, we could tell. Yeah, yeah. They march down to the ring and they climb right up the scaffold. Unsettlingly, Animal breaks a part of its barricade when he gets up top. (laughs) They chuck their entrance gear down off the scaffold and they beckon the express up. This continues for a while. (laughs) Animal takes the time to repair the barricade a little, thankfully. Well, let's, let's be fair. You're saying barricade like it's... Like a wall. But no, it's, it's actually, it's, yeah, it's four thin pieces of metal sort of hooked together yeah, around like the edge. PVC pipe. Yeah. I was being generous saying metal, sorry. Yeah. Small guard rail. Yeah, there you go. Yes. Meanwhile, the referees try to encourage the Express to climb up, and Cornette gives up on doing his ring intros this time and lets Tony do it. Condry tentatively starts up, but sees the Road Warriors and starts climbing back down. Cornette encourages him to go up, and Eaton starts to go up after him. Condry gets up towards the top and refuses to get on, as Cornette goes over and yells at Tony about this match being insane and stupid and ridiculous. Condry and Eaton finally do get up top. Hawk and Animal immediately make the scaffold shake, and the Express dive to the scaffold floor to hold on. The match proper starts with them pairing off and brawling, and that's pretty much how things go for a while. They gingerly step around, careful of their footing, and land punches and careful stomps and stay very, very close to the handrails at all times. (laughs) Condry gets powder and blinds Hawk, and Eaton does the same to Animal, as Cornette celebrates and taunts the announcers. The Express take control, and Condry nearly pushes Hawk off, while Eaton struggles to do the same to Animal. Animal fights back, and Eaton briefly hangs from his leg before he gets hold of the lower part of the scaffold. The Road Warriors fight back and everyone's back up top for more brawling. Eaton and Condry bleed. Condry tries to crawl down, and Hawk pursues. Eaton goes to help, and Animal goes after Eaton. Everybody ends up hanging from the underside of the scaffold, and Eaton tries to climb across to get at Hawk. But Hawk knocks Condry down, and Animal kicks Eaton down, and both land on the mat below, giving the Legion of Doom the win. Post-match, Bubba comes over to check on Eaton and Condry, And Cornette goes after Ellering, but Ellering gets his racket. Cornette flees up the scaffold, and Ellering follows, and Animal is still up top. Cornette hangs on the scaffold for dear life, and Animal shuffles him off the side and leaves him hanging. He drops, and Bubba is clearly supposed to catch him, but misses. Cornette lands badly, and his legs give out, 
and Bubba and Eaton help carry him out as Cornette lets them know that, that his knee is hurt and that they'll need to carry him. By my understanding, Cornette tore every ligament in one knee, damaged the cartilage, and broke a bone. The way Cornette tells it, Bubba at first didn't realize he was actually hurt and not just selling. Cornette is helped out of the arena by Bubba and Eaton, and you can hear his pain cries loud and clear. From my understanding, what happened is that Bubba is supposed to catch him, but he's wearing these dark sunglasses as part of his gimmick, and he just literally can't see where Cornette is. So uh, he doesn't actually see when he falls, and only realizes that he's not in the right place as Cornette hits the ground, basically. Yeah. So. I mean, it's barely a match. It's supposedly just the spectacle of, will they climb, and who will fall, and when will they fall? I mean, I didn't love last year's previous match where it was just four people fighting and everyone bleeding and the one guy dragged for no apparent reason with the Midnight Express. But this wasn't exactly the follow-up I was expecting and hoping yeah. for. I was expecting like a Rock and Roll Express, Midnight Express kind of match. But instead I'm getting that brawl from last year's show and then this where they are scared to fall off the scaffold, which they should be. Yes. As Cornette proves later. So there's really not much match to talk about. It's them awkwardly standing there. Road Warrior Hawk had apparently had a minor break of his leg before the match even started. Oh my gosh. You could not have told, you know, tell that. No. He crawls, goes right up that ladder and it seems perfectly steady. Yeah, he has no I was trouble. looking for it. Yeah. I was looking for anything, any sign, but I couldn't see anything. Interesting. If I hadn't been told that, I would not have, not have believed his leg was broken. <laughs> wow. Fractured or broken? I'm not sure the extent. Obviously, it was enough that he was walking around on it, but yeah, it was bad. Huh. Yeah. yeah. I liked it. Yeah? No, I mean, like, especially the part where they're um, they're going underneath the scaffolding and they're fighting on the the actual the ladders on the sides. I don't think I've seen a match like that before. You know, yeah. it's not a traditional ladder match. I was hoping uh, Hawk would start yelling in the beginning like a like an actual Hawk, because uh, that <laughs> would be something that he would do. Yeah. And I'm just sorry that, you know, that, that uh, some injuries were had. Yeah. I was kind of wondering when we were watching this, whether this would be one that you'd end up liking, because it is a very different match, definitely. So it kind of hit you that way of the, this is something that I don't normally get to see kind of spectacle, huh? Yeah, that and like, you know, I can understand why some people, you know, this is what sold, probably sold a bunch of tickets. Yeah. I don't think I've seen anything like that. I think I like it better than a cage match personally, but that's, okay. that's just me because it's, there's, it's open. You know, you like if a cage match, if you knock someone over, like there's cages bigger than the entire ring. Mm -hmm. So there's less danger there. Um, you can find more foothold or handholds and, uh, I was hoping they would do like the whole monkey bar thing at the end. Like, like all you had to do was face the other way, and they could, you know, make one of those what were those uh, toys that have like the four balls? <laughs> oh, the <laughs> uh, perpetual motion machines. The little kinetic uh, sculpture. Yeah, it was kinetic. Yeah, they yeah. Done that. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> give it, give it a few years when this turns into like a comedy match or something, and maybe they'll do it. <laughs> well, I mean, it was just interesting for me. Yeah, and. Uh, Again, I, I also like Legion of Doom, so... Yeah, those those guys are pretty awesome. No, it's not... Yeah, it's rentable. Sure. So, 
for my part, yeah, I, I can't say that I actually enjoyed watching this. I can say I was excited or rather terrified, I guess would be the more appropriate word. I'm deathly afraid of heights, so just the thought of this match got my heart pounding a mile a minute. As far as the match itself, Cornette's antics up until his fall are great, but as a match, I felt it was pretty slow-paced and pretty boring if you could overlook the fact that stepping even slightly wrong could send someone falling quite literally to their death. They understandably can't do much up there, and they have to be really, really careful with every single move that they make. So I can't blame anyone here for how slow the match is and how little happens in it, really. But for me, it was just this weird mix of utterly boring and mind-bogglingly terrifying. And if I never see another scaffold match, it'll be too soon. Unfortunately, I know this won't be the only one I have to watch for this show. In fact, I think there's one on the very next Starcade. <laughs> well, I get why you say it was boring, though, because I think that like the first three minutes of the match, they, you could tell that everyone involved was just acclimating. <laughs> yeah, they're they're all you're going to get in a scaffold match is them walking side to side on the scaffold and punching each other, and there might be like one big spot where they do the dangling or something like that. But right. that's that's just for me. Like if I'm looking at it as a spectacle and as a oh my gosh what would it actually be like to be up there i can muster some not interest so much as fear but if i'm looking at it purely as a what can they actually do in a match i feel like i have doubts that any scaffold match that i ever watch will be different from this i do i do agree the ending spot is pretty cool the uh, them dangling underneath it and mm-hmm. like swinging back and forth and fighting that looked really neat and probably was also the safest way that they could have done the falls to end the match. Yes, as it gets the height lower and lets you kind of swing yourself out and land. You know, as I've seen stuntmen land in training and also yeah, tuck your legs and tuck your head yeah. forward, extend the duration of the fall. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't work out so well for Cornette, but two out of three, I guess. Yeah, the legs just bent the wrong way. Yeah, I do love that Cornette acts like a teenage girl in a slasher film that he runs up. He has to go upstairs in this case up yeah. the scaffold even to the has spot has where you definitely more. can't escape. Yeah. yeah, and he has way more op- opportunity to escape than they do in those movies. It's extra funny that a grown adult man thinks that's the best plan. Yeah, yeah, poor Cornette. This is one of those moments where I really was really glad that I knew in advance that a guy went on to have a long career. Because as bad as that fall was, it could have been even worse, easily. Hmm. I just realized something. The other really bad leg thing is as the Sid Vicious thing. Well, it'll, be, it'll be a while. Yes. But it's in 2001. Yeah. But anyways, that happens during a match where the reveal at the end is who the masked person is, is Road War Animal. Yep. So we Road have two, two graphic, that one's more visibly graphic, but they're both really bad. Leg injuries and WCW shows, both or animals are connected with thread. Darn it, it's all up it's all his fault. It's weird, man. <laughs> I think Hawk actually came to our school, Bobby. Oh yeah? Yeah, and uh I, I forget which class it was, but he did like a little inspirational thing for like, you know, the period. Makes time wise that would make sense. That's cool. Yeah, I don't I I didn't remember that myself, but I think I think you're right on that. That would make sense time wise, because that's around the time he he tried to turn his life around. Yeah. So I could see why he'd be doing that kind of stuff. Probably probably lived in the area at the time. Yeah. Early 1987, the Midnight Express is doing just well, except for Jim Cornette's leg, obviously. And then abruptly, 
for a taping, Dennis Connery doesn't show up. Mm. And he doesn't ever show up again. Well, at least not anytime soon. So they bring in a new guy to replace him, which we will see in the next Starcade. All right. The Road Warriors also, following this match, ended up as part of the Four Horsemen versus everybody else feud, and they are in the first war game match as well. Okay, I can only imagine that's kind of awesome. Yeah. Back to Tony, and he tells us that there will be another Great American Bash next year, and we cut to yet another video showing highlights from Great American Bash 86. The guy doing this video sounds exactly like a 1940s advertising announcer. <laughs> it's not a particularly good collection of clips, and it lingers on each bit for far too long. Do like 5 or 10 seconds for each match, guys. The coolest moments, not a whole dang section. Having this, I also have to say, kind of confuses things. Because we get to see Dusty win the title at Great American Bash 86. Mm -hmm. But then Flair's the champion tonight. And we don't get any video coverage or explanation of what happened. That's true. Uh, they come back from the video, and Tony announces another intermission. <laughs> then we come back with the credits. Uh, Show's over, guys. Yeah, if only. Close uh, it up. With two more matches to go, they're doing the credits. They've unlearned the lessons they learned at Starcade 83. Altogether, video and credits eat up about another eight minutes between the matches. Yeah. Felt like, felt like 80, but most of, <laughs> most, of the, most of the video package. Yeah, yeah. He keeps in his guy named Virgil Runnels in the, video, in the credits, <laughs> though. I don't know who he is, but he must be doing a lot backstage. <laughs> Our next match is back at the Coliseum, and we get the Rock and Roll Express, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson, versus the Anderson brothers, Ole and Arn, in a steel cage match for the Express's NWA World Tag Team Championship. Save me from the evil video packages, Arn. <laughs> <laughs> Following a tumultuous period where a bunch of people fight over the tag titles, including them in Express in 86, the titles eventually go back to Ricky Morton and then company back in August. So they've been champions August through November at this point. And obviously the Andersons are the big tag team portion of the Four Horsemen. And they express in one promo, I think it might have been before this match, some point in the show, their goal is to get every single title they can hmm. and both hold them and to keep them. Go So that's basically all you need to know is that the Rockman Express have the titles and the Four Horsemen want to have every title. So they got to fight. Okay. It's unclear if this is no DQ or not. I don't recall it actually being mentioned, and no one really acts like it is, so I assume this is another one of those odd cage matches fought under normal tag rules where disqualifications do somehow apply. Those kind of stop happening later, but I guess they're actually kind of a thing around this time, judging from some of our earlier year stuff as well. I guess so. Ole and Gibson start, and it goes pretty well for Gibson despite some early double-team attempts by the Andersons. He fights each of them in turn and does well, and the teams trade off a bit in different combinations with the Express generally dominating, until Arn dodges out the corner as Gibson comes in with a jumping knee strike and Gibson rams his own knee into the cage. Arn starts abusing Gibson's leg with rams into the cage, and he and Ole trade off with a variety of leg holds, stomps, leg drops, kicks, and slams, all targeted at Gibson's legs. Gibson gets occasional flashes of offense, but whenever he knocks Arn or Ole down, they just keep hold of his leg with one hand and tag their partner with the other, smooth as can be. 
Arn yells taunts at Morton, but Gibson finally manages to escape with an enziguri kick to Arn's face, and Commando rolls out of the way of Arn's grab when Arn goes for his leg, and he gets the tag to Morton. Morton comes in with a lot of fire, but a tag to Oli stops that, as Oli kicks him in the gut and flings him hard into the cage. Twice. The Andersons methodically pick Morton apart, repeatedly injuring the head and face to get him dazed and bloodied, and then laying in a hurting on his arm in every way they know how. They drag Morton around the ring and bat away his comeback attempts, and any time Morton does land a good hit, a nice DDT being the standout, the other Anderson comes in and puts a stop to that right away, and lays in even more of a hurting. A hammerlock slam, a vicious shoulder breaker, and some nasty arm locks from Oli, and Arn's absolutely beautiful spine buster leave Morton laying, and if he ever finds a moment free, he doesn't have enough energy to even get to his corner. He drags himself over bit by bit, but an Anderson is always there to stop him, sometimes inches from the tag. Finally, Morton manages to desperately land a series of punches on Oli and get him wobbling, but Oli just fires back with a knee strike. But Morton rolls Oli up for two, which brings Arn in for the save. Gibson lunges in to fight Arn and lands some blows in the corner to knock him down, while Oli picks Morton up for a body slam. As he does, Gibson turns and lands a drop kick, knocking Oli over with Morton on top of him, and the ref counts three. Post-match, the Andersons, enraged, beat up Gibson and Morton, and ram Morton into the cage again, but the Express escape through the cage door and walk off, wounded but celebrating their victory. So I really like this one a lot. Last year, we obviously had a tag title match in the cage with the Rock'n'Roll Express against the Russian team, which was then Ivan and Nikita, which was good. I definitely liked that match, but for me, this is the better version of that match, mm-hmm. because taking away from that other match... But there, you know, there's a little weak point here and there indicated in Ivan's game from one or another, whether it's age, experience, what have you. There's really not a not a hole anywhere in the game plan of Arn and Oli. Mm-hmm. So they really do the dynamic of stop the tag, control him. Even though he's fighting you, you keep fighting him, and you can methodical and surgical strikes on limbs is amazing to watch. Obviously, the Spinebuster is beautiful, as always. If you're going to tell something about 80s tag wrestling and explain the idea that you always have the face in peril, some of often just the one Rock and Roll Express member, as the cliche goes. Yeah, playing playing Ricky Morton is the expression that some people use for that, yeah. Yes. (laughs) If you you want to tell somebody how those matches go and you say, what match should I watch, it's this one. That's high praise. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I like to watch the Andersons work. They do really good. I mean, like there's, there's, it's seamless for most of the the match. You know, there's always a, a certain intensity to them as, as well as skill level. So that always raises the bar. Just going in, you know what to expect. Ricky, I, I don't know. Like I, I kind of felt sorry for him. Yeah, and I think that was the point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that's what he's good at <laughs> is getting your sympathy. <laughs> Yeah, but um, it was a good match. Um, I got to I got to ask you guys because we actually see both Rock and Roll Express members in in trouble in this match. We see Gibson at the beginning of it, and then they transition to Morton. Morton is obviously the more famous of the members for for doing the in trouble spot. Do you agree that he's does it better, or do you feel like? Hmm. Uh, I liked Gibson. Mm-hmm. But he did just fine. the The key is how much you keep fighting. Because if someone's just beating up and you just sort of lay there and get thrown around, there's no dynamic to it. But you have to have a little bit where you try to kick or you try to jump away and they always stop you. 
that's what they rock and roll express obviously got down from experience in yeah. fact they are literally suppressing today mostly because one of them has really bad alimony to pay off unfortunately <laughs> but yeah i imagine they're not as crisp and smooth anymore <laughs> 32 years later but they do still the same act yeah because it works you just gotta throw a bunch of right hands just keep throwing them. That, that's how you know they're fighting. You're fighting back. <laughs> yeah, for me, um, I mean, you've got probably the best face in peril tag team in the history of wrestling facing off against probably the best target and control and opponent tag team in the history of wrestling. There's no way this is going to suck. You know, yeah, <laughs> this is as, like you said, this is a tag match that's like the example of what 80s tag wrestling should be. This is a tag match that I hope modern tag teams study Mm -hmm. because it is a masterclass in both sides of a tag match. Arn and Oli have gotten even better at smoothly keeping control of a match and tagging in and out without ever letting an opponent have a second free. And they lay down an impressive hurting on both express over the course of the match in vastly different ways. The express meanwhile are exciting and pull out really quick snappy moves beautiful enziguri from gibson in particular and they do an amazing job of selling the beating while still keeping viewers convinced that if they can just make that tag everything could turn around morton in particular is brilliant i think in this one he constantly seems a split second from making the tag but times his movement around around the ring just right to not quite make it there in time there's an art to it to to like getting your hand out there just about to make the tag and knowing that your opponent's going to be able to interrupt you in time still. And he's the master. Mm -hmm. The ending was a surprise for me, but the good kind. I like that the Express didn't actually manage a real comeback from the beatdown. They just managed to surprise the Andersons to get the win. It was a good way to honor the story of the match, so the faces didn't seem like supermen. But they were just smart and savvy enough to win the battle anyway. The slow-motion post-match shows Gibson still selling the leg injury during the pinfall, too, which is awesome. (laughs) That is nice. Yeah, this was a tremendous match. My complaints about is this or is this not a no-DQ match aside with the cage match thing, that's like the only bad thing I can say about this. It's brilliant. Yeah, I can't disagree. Good acting on all ends. Yeah. And I thought I would also like to actually compliment uh, the camera work. Okay. Which is a first. Um, <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Some of it looked really cinematic. That they were always doing ground-up shots so you could get everyone that in full view. You could see where all their hands and what the next mm-hmm. hole was going. And uh, they knew to get close enough to the, the mesh so it looked like it was a shot from inside the cage. True. And then they... Yeah. And when they were getting to the points where they were putting their head, you know, pushing them up against the, the cage, they knew to pull back just enough and it already had it focused on the cage because they knew the face or whatever was going to be pressed up against it before the shot hits there. So, yeah, I didn't really think about that during this, but I guess the fact that I wasn't thinking about the camera work is an indication of how the camera work was actually good during this one. And they, they do a good job of picking the right camera angle for a lot of spots where you don't get to see what the person's doing to protect themselves from it. You, you just, it just looks like a really hard hit. And they didn't resort to the, the, the giant pan where it's got the entire cage, you know, in no, the, yeah. in, in the audience the whole time. Oh no. Yeah. And the only reason why I remember that the, uh, the camera works so vividly 
is there's one spot where one of the Anderson brothers has uh, like an arm lock on them or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they have it like there's a it's a diamond and it has both their faces <laughs> in, in like at the points <laughs> of the diamond as it zooms in and then eventually the cage goes away. It It just it looked like it was, you know, planned. Yeah, they actually thought it out a little more. That's nice. Good point. Yeah, I get that. In 1987, Oli retires from wrestling, at least somewhat. He comes back a little bit later. So we have an opening of the Four Horsemen that will be filled during the year. And Bob knows who it is, but I won't spoil it for John yet. Uh, the other story about it is, so I mentioned after his match that Rick Rude leaves for WF in April. Between this show and that exit, Manny Fernandez and Rick Rude were the tag team champions. Hmm. So you're wondering, how do they handle that? He didn't apparently didn't give him enough notice that they really have lose title a week or two in advance, and he's gone. They instead what they do is they took a match between the Rock and Roll Express and them, which ended in a non-finish because it was taped weeks ago and didn't have the title change that wasn't only wasn't planned for quite a ways out. They just ran that as if that was a new match, and then said that Ricker was injured during that match. <laughs> And the Rock and Roll Express got the tag titles back. That's funny. So, yeah. Our final match is at the Omni, and it's Ric Flair versus Nikita Koloff for Flair's NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Because, as we mentioned before, there's the car accident, which derails the match that was planned. So, in the quick buildup, what they do is, with... Seemingly with storyline, both Tully and Dusty being injured, they book a handicap match where it's Tully and J.J. Dillon in a cage match against Dusty Rhodes. And if he loses, he's not going to be at Starcade. That's what they frame. I guess they mean it's a title match. They don't I guess. say that. But they say if he loses, he's not going to be at Starcade. So I assume that's what that means. They never clarify that. So he comes out for his match while they're already in the cage. And he's walking in the ring. And behind him is clearly Nikita Koloff. You know, he's six foot six. Yeah. He did not blend into a room. But somehow they're surprised when he's there and starts helping Dusty. I guess maybe they thought he was really, really good at sneaking behind Dusty. He was waiting to attack him. <laughs> but the video here, he's just walking right behind him the entire way. And they're like, what, what are you doing here? Like, been there the whole time. So they, he turns face abruptly because of what happened. And they do a video package the next week where Dusty talks about how he always knew Nikita was a great athlete, um, but he was always sort of misled, and he's not going to say that he's fully changed, but he's also not going to listen to anyone that doubts him about now supporting Nikita Koloff. And they brand themselves with the tag team name of the Superpowers. Ah, okay. So basically, Dusty is hinged his entire character upon you believing that Nikita is now... But he's not pro-America, but he's definitely not pro-Russia anymore. Mm-hmm. The show a week before Starcade, the Russian team went a match against some jobbers, and they start berating Dusty for working with Nikita. Dusty, being the British soldier, goes into the ring, and they start beating him up. And then finally, Nikita runs in, after sort of selling the, the doubt of it, runs in and knocks them both out, thus fully establishing that he is now Definitely anti-Russian. Okay. 
Or at least anti the Russian team. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he doesn't act like he's a completely different person. It's just Dusty likes me and I'm I'm gonna fight Ric Flair and Ric Flair's not afraid of him. I think they kinda sell it too, don't they, as like he was impressed by Magnum T A and matches yes. that they had and they also sell that. So as it's well. kind of out of honor for Magnum that he's Yes. Yeah. Him and Magnum fought a bunch of times at the Great American Bash Tour. Yes. Okay. Over the US title, I believe. Hmm. So there's a couple of aspects to it, but yeah. It basically comes down to Dusty putting his whole character behind this thing. You have to like him and believe him because I like him and I believe yeah. him. Yeah. And obviously it worked because yeah. he's Dusty. To be fair, I, I think like considering the short notice and everything, that's probably about as good of a transition as you could expect. Yeah. They have you know? basically two and a half weeks, three weeks of and and yeah. If you're gotta have someone tell the crowd, "Hey, like this person, Dusty's a good person to say it," because mm-hmm. the crowd loves him, so they'll certainly be heard. <laughs> <laughs> Flair gets some flash paper set off behind him this time, and he's got a classy blue and silver robe. You can actually see bits of the remains of the flash paper rain down from above as he stands there. Someone calls Flair a son of a, you know, on the way to the ring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cut that. Yeah. Between Flair's entrance and Koloff's, we get a music video. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. set to a nice romantic song and features Magnum TA running on the beach while a lady looks on. We do get one shot of Magnum cheering in victory in the ring, but we get far more shots of a seagull flying and the sunset. So anyway, Magnum eventually meets up with the lady and they walk along the beach and watch the waves. It's it's kind of sweet that they wanted to do some sort of tribute video for Magnum, I guess, but this was kind of a weird one. You cut out the single shot that they show a couple times of Magnum cheering in victory, and you would have no idea that that guy was a wrestler. Yeah. He likes to run in the distance. <laughs> What'd you think of it, John? Was this was this nice, or...? This was the highlight of the night. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> called it i like the song actually i rather like the song <laughs> i don't I rewatched know. that the one thing i did rewatch was that i yeah. don't know if it was some new age like spa thing that was gonna go on like you know like like some healing seminar that <laughs> Cause i don't know yeah because it's a while before they, they cut to magnum at all it's just that lady and then some yeah, guy it's just this dist- lady sitting in the beach and then you and can the see people. something fl- Something I, running in the distance, but I, I know that the ages don't line up. But I thought like that was his mom, you know. Kind of looked like it at first. We were wondering she, why that too. Yeah, I she looks know. younger when you see her more fully later in the video. But mm-hmm. yeah, I was I was confused about what the relationship was here, and I'm guessing that's his wife or girlfriend. Or I, maybe I'm not he sure at the can time. turn into a seagull, or you know, some yeah. other. It was confusing, but. I mean, it's nice that they did something for him. I just kind of wish they'd done it better. Right. I also feel bad for Flair. I had to sit there and just wait for it. So it's a nice gesture. And yeah. It's yeah. like a like a child's hand-drawn birthday card. You understand the gesture, but it's also really like, eh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. John's silent at that. It, I'm, not, I'm not it, judging children. It's just it, well for me, uh, it is different. Like like I have a greater appreciation, you know, because I'm like, oh, good, you're drawing something. I like that. Yeah, okay. No, I mean, that's no, why you like yeah. the video package so more than that. No, I, I enjoyed the video package. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Good. Yeah. 
No, I I honestly thought it was a different show and that this was a problem. Like they, had... we were yes. really confused when it first. Yeah, ran. yeah. When it loaded up, I was like, did did we just switch to a different video? <laughs> yeah. Music videos. Yeah. Nikita coming to the ring totally looks like Goldberg. He still has his Soviet jacket, but no longer has the Russian national anthem or the intimidating red lights. He is currently the United States heavyweight champion. There's a little undercurrent of booze from some of the crowd, I guess lingering Russian guy sentiment, mm -hmm. but most of them are pretty happy to see Nikita and many more boo flare. So this Starcade is the very first one where the NWA World Heavyweight Championship is represented by what will come to be known as the Big Gold Belt, the world title belt most associated with WCW's run. It was created in February 1986 to replace the older design. I mention that just because it is by far my favorite title design in wrestling. It's big, it's impressive, but I think it still looks classy, and it just kind of screams champion. The irony of the course is that that belt was sort of co-opted through the merger that happened with with WWF at the time. Yeah, to the point where it was used as one of their world titles for quite a while, and so the NWA, which does still currently exist, when they suddenly have started really promoting title matches again, like with Cody and Nick Aldis, they have the old belt design you saw at Stark '85. Yeah, at least it's yeah a NWA title. That no, oh, yeah. It's just kind of funny that we're seeing the older belt now because of that. Yeah. The ref starts out the match by telling the men to shake hands, but both ignore him. <laughs> Lockups go poorly for Flair as Nikita shoves him away across the ring, and he takes a walk for a moment to think. He tries a test of strength, and that goes poorly as well. His chops are utterly ignored, and he even hurts his hand, shaking it off as he takes another walk. Back in, Nikita overpowers him on a wrist lock, and Flair springs back up and yells, Now you get your butt kicked, you son of a gun! <laughs> <laughs> Nikita overpowers Flair and lands huge hip tosses and some impressive one-handed slams, and the crowd is now firmly on his side. Flair dodges a shoulder block and Nikita hits the turnbuckle, allowing Flair to hit a lengthy, stalling vertical suplex. But Nikita just springs back up and Flair rolls out of the ring in frustration. Back in, Nikita just keeps overpowering Flair until Flair finally dodges a clothesline and Nikita spills out of the ring to the floor. Flair works on his leg and gets the figure four, using the ropes for leverage, but Nikita finally rolls him over to force Flair to break. The leg's weak, so Flair uses that to keep ahead of the big angry Russian, then shoves him through the middle rope and smashes his face into the scaffold to get him bleeding. Flair works on the face, but Nikita powers out and resumes battering Flair. After Flair flips out of the ring... A second scaffold attempt ends with Flair meeting the metal himself, and both men are bleeding. Back in, they trade blows and Nikita earns a flare flop, but a flying shoulder block hits both Flair and Ref Tommy Young. Nikita hits an absolutely massive clothesline to Flair, but there's no Ref. Nikita tries to help Ref Scrappy McGowan help Young up, and Flair ambushes him with a knee strike for two, and is hurled onto McGowan. Nikita strikes Flair in the corner, and Young gets back in and tries to separate them, but Nikita pushes him away. A second try, and Flair hits him with a knee strike meant for Nikita. Young calls for the bell and disqualifies both men to end the match. Post-match, Nikita clotheslines Young, and other wrestlers come in to try to get between him and Flair, suffering more massive clotheslines. 
Bubba, Garvin, and Dundee finally hold Nikita for Flair to land some hits, but many of the face wrestlers come down to get between them and brawl with the heels. I guess you should specify there, Jimmy Garvin. Yeah. Because <laughs> we've got two Garvins on the show now. Finally, the two groups separate, and Young hands the belt to Flair, but Nikita lunges back over and the brawl erupts once more. The faces finally get Nikita held down in the ring as the heels drag Flair back to the dressing room, and the fight at last ends. I was surprised how well it turned out, given I know how short the build is, and how relatively new, even at this point, Nikita Koloff is. Mm -hmm. But kind of like with the Dusty Tully one, they knew exactly what the story was. The story is, Nikita is way too strong. Flair has to do something cheap and underhand to get the advantage, which he then does. I thought both of them did that part really well. It's a shame that they don't have a solid finish, like we mentioned with other matches. It's weird that it's double qualification, even though one guy shoves her up first. It happened. It's happened since and before in wrestling, but it's weird. Double qualification timing has to be perfect, and it really wasn't for me here. Yeah, but either way, it gets what they wanted. They wanted Flair not to lose the title, and they also they wanted Nikita look strong. Yeah. So I understand why they did what they did, but I wish they'd gone different with this. I don't think I want Nikita win the title, but maybe have him be a counter, something that's not just no decision whatsoever. Yeah. That's my only real negative on it, is that that and also, as much as we praise the camera people on, at the other arena during the cage match, the people in, in the Omni here are really bad at not cutting away when both Flair and Nikita are laying on the ground clearly blading themselves. <laughs> They'd kind of look and go, I want to do it, let's, let's zoom in closer. It's a documentary. Yeah. And it definitely suffers from more of the, the scaffolds in the way shots, too. Yes. That, where they have to work their way around that, so they end up zoomed in too much or something, on, and you miss some of what's going on in the match. Yeah. When even just the idea that anytime you're watching the match, you, like, if you just watch, like, you want to know where he can pull matches by themselves. So if, you know, you're a random person pulling this match up, you're like, what, what, is, what's, what is this thing around the ring? Yeah, yeah. You have no context to that. It's just bizarre. I really like the the build up in the beginning where obviously I mean it he plays it exactly how it how it looks like he, there's no way Flair can match the physicality of uh, Nikita in any way shape or form speed wise or anything so he just tries different angles you know until he finds something that works and then uh, he looks really good like I think he even poses at one point and um, you know showing off like oh I finally did it and uh, Nikita gets back up and he just like lunges out out of the ring yeah <laughs> but i mean that's flair yeah oh yeah i, I was just impressed with uh, nikita's um speed and strength and uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't think i like the you know the double disqualifications especially when all like not all the matches but most of the matches up till this point are no dq point yeah there's, yeah. yeah there's been a lot of those I mean, with boot the one DOS boot aside, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this was a really, really, really fun match. It's a little slower paced than some of the others, but it's not boring by any stretch of the imagination. No. It just sets a careful pace and it keeps to it and allows plenty of time for character work. Nikita is drastically improved. The first year, he didn't seem to have much. The second year, he clearly was learning his craft, but still they were protecting the amount of time they let him get exposed out there. Now, he doesn't seem to have a ton of moves, but what he does, he does really, really well. Tech Barbarian, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, everything looks like it would hurt, and his power is impressive. Those one-handed slams particularly were really cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, over the head? Yeah. And then there's a cool spot, actually, where he does a elevated bear hug, and then he leans down into a couple pin attempts that oh, he's yeah, just yeah. keeping the hold on flare, and they just picks him right back up off the mat, clean into the bear hug, which I thought was really cool. It's one of the only times you will ever hear me compliment a bear hug spot. <laughs> He's built up as a massive and powerful threat to Flair, and he totally fulfills that role. Flair, for his part, is brilliant, and he gets the maximum mileage out of every single moment. He alternates from between cowering and strutting around confidently, begging for mercy and mocking his foe. This is the first time I think we get to see the Flair that believes he's better than the wrestler that he's facing. With Race, he was the challenger proving himself, and then the couple times we've gotten him against Rhodes, he was facing a rival that he knew could potentially beat him. Sure. But with Nikita, he's facing an unproven young powerhouse, so he slowly comes around to the idea that Nikita might actually be able to win, and that he's actually a pretty scary dude. Mm-hmm. I thought he did a great job of playing up how much that shakes him. I think you were noting that too, John, that it's like he has these moments where it's like, oh my gosh, I really am not hurting this guy. And kind of scampers away and needs to cool down and figure out a new game plan and all. Yeah, so this entire match is Flair making Nikita look like a million bucks. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, Nikita does his part, and those clotheslines could do all the work themselves. Sure. But Flair put everything he could into making clear that Nikita is bigger than him, stronger than him, and could very well beat him. And it works. I came into this match feeling like it might be a little di- bit disappointing, because Nikita... You know, like I said, wasn't much involved in 84 and was just a respectable part of the match in 85. But this ended up really fun to watch. It was nice to see the fully realized Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. First time, I would say, in this. 85 was close, but 86 is definitely the total package. Yeah, just that extra little step of, I believe I'm better than you, mm-hmm. kind of takes it to the, the Ric Flair we truly know. Exactly. A lot of chops. Yes. <laughs> that is also the Ric Flair we know. <laughs> it's like, it's not a, he's not a tree, you know. It's not, it's just, <laughs> although, you know, his arms probably is around, you know, as big as one. But uh, yeah, I, I did like the, towards the end of the match, and not that it was like a super long match. I mean, there was plenty of stuff after the match that lasts just as long as the, the main event. I like that Nikita, after doing all these big moves, was still able to move as quick as he did. Yes. Yeah. He has really good stamina, actually. Mm-hmm. I will note on the bit at the end with all the other wrestlers in the ring, it's kind of funny that these guys who have... It's been a couple hours since their matches. I guess they went to the back, put on their dress pants, and then just sat down. No, never, like, never put on shirts. It's not dress pants. It's like literally every single person there is wearing blue jeans. That's true. That's, that's hilarious. So either they nobody bothers to put a shirt on when they're done with the show, or they all were sitting back there dressed normally, saw a fight break out, took their shirts off, and then went out there. I believe that. Towards the middle of the year, uh, Nikita loses the U.S. title in sort of screwy fashion to protect him. He then gains the TV title in August, hmm. which goes into Starcade of next year. Okay. Brick Flair's uh, Taiwan Canoe's unabated he does lose his title in September, also setting up Starcade next year. Following the match, Rick Stewart starts trying to wrap up, but Tony has to interrupt to actually announce the end of the match to the crowd, fulfilling his double duty. <laughs> the two go over the matches and throw to a highlight package to close the show. 
Unfortunately, the scariest pile driver I've ever seen makes the package, as does Cornette's injury. Yeah, I guess they didn't know the extent of his leg issue. With yeah, the they were like, oh, what an awesome fall. Good job, Jim. Who's a good pile driver? I can see why I made the cut. Yeah, I just don't like that one. I don't know what it is. Something about that one scared me. Weight ratios. <laughs> yeah. Overall thoughts, guys, on Starcade 86, The Skywalkers. So, it's definitely a very long show. It's one of those ones where, unlike the 84 show, which felt long and had so many weak points or points that just didn't deliver, so it felt longer in that way. This is even longer than that, but all the matches, for the most part, deliver in some, at least one big major way. Mm-hmm. Even if it's just that they're all longer. We even think it's the same amount of matches technically as 85, but it's just they're all length, actual length matches. So it is longer, but I don't know, it doesn't necessarily feel longer because each match has its own story for the most part. And there's unlike 84, there's not random filler. So there's nothing that's completely inconsequential. There's stuff I liked better than others, but nothing is really bad in the show. Yeah, I agree with Al. The pacing on the show is a little bit, little bit off, and uh, video packages, while elaborate, do kind of throw you f- for a little bit of a loop because they usually don't involve the people that are going to be wrestling next. <laughs> so this one had at least a thousand percent more seagulls, so I am thankful for that. <laughs> it. I like that there's an emergence of name moves like the claw. I uh, I, I don't know why I like that so much. Um, <laughs> it's from Liar Liar. Maybe. Yeah, that's oh, true. There you go. Yeah. No one escapes <laughs> the claw. Uh, too many DQs, lots of Russians, which is always good. And I got to see Dusty, so I was happy with it. But I don't have Nikita's stamina, so it was. I had to break it up my watching into at least two or if not three different periods yeah. to get through it. I don't know if I would have fell asleep uh, if I was actually in attendance, but um, I did like the the main event, the Skywalkers. I know that you guys have expressed concerns and, and everything, but I really do like that they tried to use every bit of that prop as, as much yeah. as they could. Yeah, sure. No, I totally get, I totally get that, yeah. Yeah, definitely more enticing to me than in a cage okay even though the cage match was amazing too so all right yeah for me this was a very long show it's three hours and 51 minutes long so it's about an hour longer than all the other starcades we've watched and for me it was about an hour longer than it needed to be for me there actually were some matches that felt fairly inconsequential the whip versus chain match in particular i just didn't really need and the big bubba versus ron garvin one i could have just not really had on the show. It's not that they're necessarily awful matches or anything. It's just they don't feel like Starcade, you know, these big important things. A lot of the night kind of feels like basic TV matches in that regard, rather than big feud enders. But I agree, there's not really bad matches on the show. Mm-hmm. There's just some that just sort of exist. And 12 matches, just too many for one show. The last few matches bring the show way up. Skywalker's match, accepted in my case, but included in John's. 
Dusty versus Tully is great fun. The Rock and Roll Express versus the Andersons is just as great as I expected. And Flair versus Nikita is way better than I would have expected. Between those and some acceptable to good earlier bouts, this ends up a pretty good show. It just takes some time to get there, and it's hard to watch in one sitting. So I guess there's a reason why it had multiple intermissions. Its use of time was puzzling, too. I don't know why the company thought it was a good idea to interrupt the show with lengthy promos for other shows that have nothing to do with what's going on tonight. But, you know, they did, and it took up over 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So that's a quarter of that extra hour that I was talking about right there. And again, we have no pre-match promos at all. It makes things fall pretty flat. I think the matches need some good promos, or at least clips from promos on other shows. Something to build up some of these matches. You know, I know, like, if this were the actual time, I would be watching the TV shows to build up to them and everything. But it's just like, there should be something on the show, I think, to get you charged up for the match that's going to come on. So it's like a standalone. Yeah, so it can stand alone. So that when you watch a show 30 years after it was you know, done that, you know what, you know what's going on still, right? You know? Yeah. Should plan for the future, guys. This was still an entertaining show for me, but it felt like it combined the worst mistakes of the earlier shows. There's a lack of promos, the odd pacing, the lengthy delays, the odd camera work, the credits in the strange position on the show, and it adds long videos that have nothing related to the current show and an overly long runtime. What I will give it credit for is variety. Yeah. Matches felt very different from each other this year. Last year, I felt like we were seeing the same general concept over and over, and some just did it better. But this year, I felt like most matches had something new to offer after the prior match. I would ultimately call this a good show. It's just, it's the first time that I feel like I have to say, maybe consider watching it in multiple settings, or here, pick and choose. These matches are quite good. And you maybe don't need to watch the entire thing. Yeah, it's I'd say it's, it's a really good show in here. They would definitely need to trim it. Yeah. Let's do match of the night and MVP. L. Match of the night for me is got to be the Rock and Roll Express for Zandersons. Okay. I def, there's definitely some that come close to it, but for said now it's a template match for how these things are supposed to go. Mm-hmm. There really can't be anything else other than that. Plus, other matches that are really in contention for me, like Nikita Flair, don't have solid concrete finishes, so that takes away from matches for me. I can see that. MVP? That said, MVP, I would probably sort of tie between Nikita and Flair, because Nikita, for over-impressing in a situation where he really had to do something, because he's replacing Magnum TA in this match, and this essentially his role in the company, and Flair's part, Flair is fully fully formed here and he really plays as part of the cowardly but clever heel against the imposing overpowering force very well if Nikita didn't deliver flair match would be worse likewise if flair didn't do such a good job being the arrogant heel then nikita's would deliver as well so they had to both be other games for me that's why i tied it with them yeah if you had to pick one probably flair okay <laughs> I, I rec- fully recognize, yeah, that's a hard choice, honestly. On Those two are both quite good for that match. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, match of the night and MVP. I'm having a really hard time 
Uh, I'm replaying the last two matches because they were standouts from everything else. There was a clear breaking point. You you had Seagulls. You had (laughs) two exemplary matches that both show skill and perfect archetypes of what those characters are supposed to be. You know, you got the imposing uh, strength versus, you know, I'm the skilled guy that can really sell it. And um, per, like you said, uh, a, a tag match that not only has great uh, camera work, but all that plays into it, but also has uh, like a template for something, other great matches. Match of the night is going to be uh, the Skywalker match. Okay. Be- okay. Because I like the uniqueness, I, the fact that Hawk went up there and, and did what he did with a broken leg. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I don't like that there was lots of consequences associated with that match, but it was it was pretty unique, I think. And, yeah. and yeah. some of that fear was genuine. <laughs> yeah, and, and to be fair, it's not like they were building in like a guaranteed consequences. They tried to make that fall safe. They just didn't go right you right. know yeah i mean like i was saying that's you know that's the only thing that detracts from it for me because i know that there was you know lingering effects yeah sure but i think that's why it should be the match because it, it has the most o- overall change to any of the people involved <laughs> all right i love the cage match and i love everyone involved however i'm probably going to go with nikita for mvp i i, I don't know i just like the rookies I guess he's a rookie, but like in that position, if I had to name anyone that night that stood out the most to me, that would be him. Okay, fair enough. There were a lot of individuals during the whole show that really did did all the work for the match. <laughs> Guerrero stood out also to me a, a lot. You know, they there were some sure. firsts. Yeah. You know, he did the first tackle outside the 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 ring and. Um, Wahoo did a good job, and so did and did, uh, Dusty and uh, Dundee. So, yeah, for doing Dark Horse, that's definitely Dundee because I I knew him by reputation, but I never seen him wrestle. So I I was very surprised what he did. We can do that. You want, so like su- surprise of the night is kind of what you call that, or sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would agree. Yeah, Dundee was was pretty surprising. The was a fine wrestler and everything, but. Just that moment where he goes running across the ropes and jumps off, just like on top of the ropes and everything. I was not expecting that from him at all. So, yeah, that was a that was a shocker. John, was there somebody that surprised you in particular? That suplex? Uh, no, it was pile driver. Sorry, I got the. Oh, okay. The, like, sure. I got the uh, thing. You know, on Bubba, <laughs> I was not expecting yeah. that. So for me, uh, match of the night. I mean, there with the praise I heaped on it. There's no way I can choose anything other than Arn and Oli versus the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah. It's taking nothing away from Flair versus Nikita. Arn and Oli versus the Rock and Roll is just like Mastercraft versus Mastercraft. You know, it's they perfectly link up to showcase exactly what they can do together, and it was really thrilling to watch. Um, there's other matches I enjoyed, but in this era. Nobody's better at heel tag team wrestling than the Andersons, and nobody's better at face tag team wrestling than the Rock and Roll Express. So those two teams against each other just makes an amazing spectacle, and I loved every minute of it. That was just tremendous to watch. 
My MVP is Ric Flair. Nikita does his part in the match, definitely. But this is the first sign that we've seen of the Ric Flair that can take unestablished guys and raise them up and make you believe that a guy who wasn't in the world title picture last year should not only be in the world title picture, but could even win. He does it smoothly and easily, and he still manages to look like he deserves to be a champion himself. This is Ric Flair proving himself as truly worthy of being the focus of the company, a guy who doesn't just fight established names like Dusty, but can bring new guys up to his level. And I think he fulfills that role excellently here, and he's going to continue to fill that role for them for many years to come. This is the first year where I think we truly saw the flair that is worthy of being the true center of attention of the company, the one that they build everything around, mm -hmm. because you can throw whoever you want against him, and he's going to give it his all, make them look like a million bucks, make you believe that they can beat him. It's like you guys said, I don't want to sell Nikita short at all. Sure. He did a tremendous job there. But just for me, seeing that side of Flair emerge, I think, pulls it out for me. That about does it for our review of Starcade 86, The Skywalkers. We'll be back next time for Starcade 87, Chai Town Heat. <laughs> That's what it's called. <laughs> it has two features that make me incredibly happy. First off, there's only seven matches. Ooh. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> And second is the Starcade debut of The Man Called Sting. Many thanks to Pro Wrestling History for attendance and closed-circuit figures. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. <laughs>